BFFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, it's sort of John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I am Peter Sampson. Along with me is Stephen Vaughn, but you will get a heavy dose of John today. We're bringing you a very special best of the bald faced truth show. We've had a lot of fun putting this together. And it's not necessarily a year in review. We've even gone back a little bit more than uh, 2022 to bring you some of the best and most relevant conversations that JC's had over the last little bit of time on this show. And I'll tell you, being involved, I didn't spearhead this, but being involved, going through some of these conversations, Stephen, really cool stuff. Kind of now that we know what we know, whether we're talking about the Trailblazers, we're talking about the Pac-12, of course, with UCLA, USC, George Klyovkov, all these different things. It's interesting to kind of listen to the conversations with that knowledge in mind. Yeah, it's like at the moment when you hear all these interviews, you know, when they're live, you don't know what's going to happen, right? And so everyone's projecting what's going to happen. But mm-hmm. now that we know the result of so many different things, it is so interesting to go back and to hear what everyone said leading up to that moment. Like, did they know stuff? Did they, you know, did they not? Like, you can kind of, you know, read a little between the tea leaves there. But, yeah, it's very interesting to go back in here. And, uh, you know, of course, with John, like, he's such a good interviewer. Like, he gets these guests to really open up and say the right answers that you want to hear. So, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, especially now that we know what happened, it's, it's good to go back and hear it. Yeah, really, really got a lot of great stuff for you today. Uh, we've got uh, Michael Llewellyn. He used to work for the the Trailblazers and Nike uh, talking about, if you remember, Phil Knight's attempt to purchase the Blazers. Uh, that was back in June. We've got, if you missed when John Canzano was on the Dan Patrick show in June, uh, same topic. We'll reset that. Of course, Trent Bray last month talking about the win over Oregon, that contract extension well-deserved that he secured. Uh, of course, sports betting, uh, a big topic of conversation across all sports mediums. Of course, we have Johnny Avello from DraftKings, uh, Kyle Whittingham on the program. Always a great guest. We'll uh, we'll hear from him back last month before the Oregon game at Autzen Stadium. Uh, we'll re- hear uh, our reaction to uh, the Deion Sanders hiring at Colorado. But we're going to start you. And this is going to be a two-parter. Going back to May 13th of 2021, and if you recall, that was when George Klyovkov was announced as the new Pac-12 commissioner, and uh, Kanzano had the exclusive with him. Michael Schill joined Klyovkov for this conversation. It was very extensive to the point we're going to split this into two segments for you, so if you missed that, Take a listen right now and really listen to what he has to say, talking about the challenges, the opportunities. And here we are a year and a half later. What's been accomplished? What hasn't? What new challenges have popped up? It's an absolutely fantastic conversation. So here on the Best of the Bald Face Truth, part one, George Klyovkov and Michael Schill. Hi, John. George Klyovkov. Nice to meet you. Hey, George. Uh, good to hear your voice. Uh, nice to uh, nice to put a voice to the face in the uh, in the resume, finally. George, can you help me, like, uh, pronunciation of your name? We, we were talking about it on radio, and I'm sure you've gotten this before, but can you help? Can you do it for us? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's phonetic. It's actually pretty easy. Uh, if, if you look at it, it's Klee-Av-Koff. And the thing to know is that no one in my life calls me by my last name. 
uh, everyone I've ever worked with. It's George K. So there you go. Please use that. All right. So, All right. Uh, I'm, at, uh, I'm at Arizona State uh, for the announcement, and uh, Herm and the rest of the folks here were all saying Commissioner K. And uh, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, given given my relationship with Mike Krzyzewski, I don't know how he'd feel about that. Yeah, I think we can go with it. We can go with Commissioner. Um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you did crew as well. What'd you learn in crew? Yeah, I, I rode. I rode at Boston University. Uh, you know, on the Charles River, just a great, great kind of place to be a college athlete, as you can imagine. I have people say that crew is the hardest thing they've ever done. Yes. Oh, by far, uh, it was very, very hard, and it taught me like kind of all of those lessons that I mentioned in my opening remarks. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's uh, it, it is. Um, it, it, it doesn't work if you're not operating as a team. Yeah. Like literally, if the eight guys aren't putting the blades in at the same time and pulling them out at the same time, it, it doesn't work. And it's a it's a metaphor for life. Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly valuable. Um, gotcha. All right, all right, George. This is Mike. All right, Mike, you're there. How are you, President Schill? I am great. How are you? Doing well. Good to hear your voice as well. Um, maybe I could start with you. I just I'll just say you know you you said George is sort of a prototype for what you think the commissioners of the future will be. Is, is that where you guys started out from the beginning? Did you ever explore other paths, or was it 100% going with somebody who had sort of media and real-world experience? So, you know, I, I what we initially did was we, we did a listening tour, right? So we, we found out what, what everybody was looking for in a commissioner, and, uh, and that was largely conducted by the search firm, but we did it, uh, a number of us participated in various aspects of that. And then I think it was partly through speaking with people. I know I spoke with another commissioner. I spoke with two other commissioners. Um, and in addition to that, we, we learned from the candidates both what they knew, how they thought about things, um, what their perspectives were, strengths and weaknesses and we we so we didn't come to this with a particular picture of what we wanted in mind and i think a number of us may have been uh you know surprised actually in how our views developed and then you know we met george to be honest and you know when george uh you know hung up his zoom we all looked at each other and said he was terrific uh they he he has everything that we need in terms of, you know, being forward-thinking, um, helping us position ourselves, the way in which we can, you know, heal some of the rifts uh, with between the Pac-12 and some of the schools. Um, and, you know, he's modest. And he also, as I mentioned during the conference, he knows what he knows and he knows what he doesn't know, and he's going to be able to, uh, like all of us, uh, be able to fill in those areas. President Schill, did you get a sense that, you know, you've got 12 members, you know, there's differences between Washington State and USC and Arizona and Oregon State, and, you know, everybody has a little different experience. Did you find that a challenge when you guys were doing that sort of listening phase, or did you find just a core of consensus uh, towards what you wanted? We had, he was, so the vote was unanimous on George. Uh, the, uh, it was, we had um, consensus 
uh, on you know what we were looking for, and I think I think it was a process of discovery for all of us. Uh, but the but we all came to it. Um, the search committee uh, came to consensus very easily, um, and then uh, we um, you know, we had done this over several you know days, uh, actually weeks, and um, and then we brought it to the board. Uh, we had you know remarkable consensus. Uh, when the finalist candidates interviewed with the board, uh, there was, you know, almost immediate consensus behind George, uh, not to consensus, unanimity. Uh, so this was not a difficult process um, to, to go through. Sure. I mean, you know, and John, yeah. here's another thing. Just we tend to, you know, we operate based upon consensus, and, you know, we, we tend not to have big, you know, big sort of di di disagreements, uh, you know, among the presidents and chancellors. Is that, do you think that's reflective of kind of academia? Is that sort of the world? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, in academia, we can have disputes over the tiniest issues. So, <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't think uh, consensus and quick consensus is... Um, is, uh, is 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 typical of academia, but I think that when you're looking for something like the head, uh, the the commissioner, it's about values, and I think we all share the same values. Uh, you know, we care deeply about our students. We care deeply about uh, academic achievement. We care we care about winning, but we care about winning the right way. Um, we care about economic sustainability. We care about um, being competitive, uh, but all of those values we all shared. And it starts, as, as George said in the, in the conference, it all starts with the students. George, uh, if I can ask, you know, when you were a kid, did you say, hey, I want to grow up, I want to be the commissioner of a, of a conference, or what, what was that dream when you were a kid? Yeah, I think shortly after you realized that you can't be the shortstop for the New York Yankees, you started thinking about, well, I'd still want to work in sports. What would the best job be? And commissioner is right up there. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't say I've always thought about being a commissioner, but as a sports fan and a former athlete, uh, it's a great honor. Uh, I, I, I started in the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx, so I'm, I, I started as a deep Yankees fan. Who is your player? Thurman Munson. So, President Schill, you're a Mets fan. You got a Yankees guy here. So this is this is interesting. I know it's 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 a little frightening, <laughs> like being you know. I remember Thurman Munson, but um, I was in the period more of Jerry Grody. <laughs> <laughs> you guys. Um, it, you know, it's interesting because there's such a connection with Las Vegas in this conference. Maybe if I could have you both speak a little bit about it. Do, do you have familiarity with each other because of that? Uh, like, you know, in your case, President Schill, you know, we were familiar with George. Had you met before? Never. So uh, I'd never met George, and I really wasn't involved at all in the uh, arrangements for T-Mobile Arena. Um, so it was – Larry was the person who, who ran those, or, or maybe other folks, Jamie – uh, but I didn't know George um, until, to be honest, I didn't know any of the candidates uh, before uh, they were brought to us by turnkey. 
and George, in your experience, you know, I, I go to your Twitter feed and it's, it's you know, it's Justin Bieber and it's uh, Dave Chappelle and now you're transitioning into sports. Is a product just a product when you talk about sort of putting them into that media engine or, you know, the um, the enterprise that, that you were in charge of with MGM? There, there are similarities and there are differences. I would say the similarities are the passion that people have for certain live entertainers and for sports. And that passion runs deep for both of them. And it's, it's unique in the entertainment and sports world compared to any other, as you said, product. Um, the difference, and candidly the reason why I made the move from what I believe to be the best entertainment job in the world, is because in this job there's a mission that I think has a broader social implication. Uh, I, I truly believe that if at the conference level we do our job well, that that will create a revenue stream for the schools to be able to use for scholarships and other academic pursuits that will change the lives of young men and women. That, that, for me, was why I made the jump. That is part one of George Klyovkov and Michael Schill's conversation with John Canzano on May 13th of last year, the day he was announced as the new Pac-12 commissioner. I'm Peter Sampson. Got Stephen Vaughn with me. This is a best-of edition of The Bald-Faced Truth. We'll take a break. On the other side, we will continue that conversation from uh, last year in May. It's a great conversation, a lot of good info here. Uh, everyone's in a great mood celebrating the uh, the hire, the transition from Larry Scott. Look forward to bringing you the rest of that interview on the other side, right here on the BFT Radio Network. You're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back to the best of the bald face. Truth, Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn with you as we revisit some of the best conversations that took place on this show over the last year plus. We're starting in May of 2021, May 13th to be exact. On the other side of that break, you heard part one of John Canzano's conversation with George Klyovkov and Michael Schild. That, of course, the day that George Klyovkov was named Larry Scott's successor, was named the new Pac-12 commissioner. So with that, we'll go ahead and bring you part two of this interview from back, uh, excuse me, last May, May 2021, right now. But there's been a rift, and I think President Schill kind of alluded to it a little bit, that, you know, I think some of the athletic directors in the last decade have felt like they weren't connected to the conference office or football coaches have complained that they don't feel understood. How do you help bridge that, George, and, and be a unifier and be a leader? Well, it's, it's started already. Uh, the press conference today was in uh, Herm Edwards' conference room uh, at, at, at Sun Devil Stadium. Uh, you know, I've already spent time with him and with the athletic director here at ASU. Uh, I, I am going to learn, and I am going to be open. And uh, every job I've had has been successful because of relationships I've built. And it's my intention to build deep, real relationships with the ADs and with the coaches and to listen to all of the academic advisors and the presidents and the chancellors and the student-athletes, but really starting with the athletic directors and the coaches, understanding what the conference can do to help them achieve their goals. Um, how important is football to, to the bottom line for you guys? It's incredibly important. It's the largest single uh, revenue provider and 
more importantly, I think uh, the prestige of the conference is reflected in the success of the football programs. President Schill, you've uh, off and on we've talked about the headquarters in San Francisco. That lease, I think, is up at the end of 2022. Um, are you guys as a conference married to San Francisco? I know that's come up, but kind of want to ask you. Um, you know, I, we're certainly not married to San Francisco. I think that one of the things that we're going to that will naturally happen is that once um, George gets uh, his sea legs, he will assess whether what location is is the best location, and 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 then he'll bring that. I'm sure he'll bring that recommendation uh, to the presidents and chancellors. Um, I think that none of us are wedded to San Francisco. And specifically, we're not wedded to the current lease and the uh, payment obligations related to it. Even if we stay in the Bay Area, it'll be with less expensive space. The, you know, the, the conference, the perception is, you know, you need, you need more revenue. Uh, the members need more revenue to be more competitive. It's a chicken and egg cycle, you know. How do you, how do you make, help the programs be more successful in the interim, while you're while you're uh, that negotiation of the next round of media rights is on the horizon, George. I think part of it is what we discussed in the formal presentation and the Q and A session, um, and that is th this focus on kind of fixing some of the structural issues. And I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves and understand those, uh, but get a lot of input on that. But I think that there are structural issues that we can immediately fix, which will make us more competitive. And the second, and I believe in this passionately, is that we have to be able to attract and retain the best talent. We have to get the recruits, uh, you know, to come play for the Pac-12. I don't think that's a tough sell. I just think we have to do a better job of, you know, packaging up the story and telling the story. And, and yeah. you know, John, we have an immediate NIL issue, uh, immediate. So that's going to affect us, and I know that um, – uh, I know that George has also thought about that. And I know right now, you know, apparently in the news conference there were some comments made over, you know, we know where the bread is buttered. I think that's honest, and I agree with it. There are some people out there that are saying, wait a minute, does this mean that women's sports uh, will not be uh, prioritized? I know that's not what you meant, George, so I want to give you a chance to kind of speak to that a little bit. No, absolutely not. I think the more successful men's basketball and football are, the more we can support you know all of the women's programs. As I think I mentioned, I'm on the WNBA Board of Governors before we sold the Las Vegas Aces earlier this year. I believe strongly in women's sports. I actually think that women's basketball is at a moment at a breakout moment. Uh, where it's going to become a much more popular sport because of the quality of the athletes. Um, and given my rowing background, I, I have um, a, a true belief that we can continue to grow Olympic sports and actually make some of those into closer to revenue sports through the distribution of that content to dedicated audiences who follow those sports on digital platforms. So I think football and men's basketball will rise the tide, and all boats rise with the tide. Graduate 1989, Boston University, degree in journalism. George, what were you thinking? <laughs> Get to my first job, uh, which was uh, 
uh, public relations coordinator for the Olympic, uh, sorry, for the uh, Goodwill Games uh, out of Atlanta. I worked for Turner Broadcasting, and I was a PR coordinator taking Olympic athletes around the country to promote the games. Um, my, my, my first real, real sports job, and I fell in love with it. I love that. In that era, what is that, like Edwin Moses era of Olympians? Yeah, I, literally. I, I got to choose who my athletes were, and it was Matt Biondi. I yeah. don't know if you remember the yeah. swimmer. Yeah, Edwin Edwin Moses, Jackie Joyner-Kersey. It was a gymnast, and I was able to choose the uh, the folks, and I ended up choosing uh, Wendy Williams, who was a bronze medalist diver in the Seoul Olympics, and also happened to be a Ray Ray Ban model, and that was back when I was a single man. <laughs> like like family wise, uh, give us an idea. You're 54 years old. Let's humanize uh, the commissioner a little bit. Um, you know. Give me an idea on a, on a Saturday afternoon. What are you and the family typically doing? Well, my kids are out of the house. Uh, I have a academic all-star who's just finishing her sophomore year uh, at the University of Georgia. Uh, I think one of the reasons she went there is because of her great love of large college sports, particularly football. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll have to re-educate her on who she roots for every Saturday. Uh, but, but but she loves uh, UGA. I have a son who is just about in two weeks to graduate from IMG Academy in Florida where he's a basketball player. Uh, he is committed to play not at the Pac-12, he's a Division Three student athlete, but he's in the Pac-12 footprint. He's committed to play at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. So if, if compared to previous commissioners, the next couple of years I spent a disproportionate amount of time in Pullman. There you go. That's my excuse. There you go. I, I do think some of the universities, I think they all, they want listening sessions with you. I think it's going to be challenging because there's only one of you. There's 12 of them. Uh, but do you have plans to get out and just spend some time on those campuses and talk to people? Yeah, I've, I've already spoken to several of the athletic directors and what they've asked for, uh, and I think it's a great indication of the relationship we're going to have, is prior to my first day on the job, they don't want me to go and visit all of them. They want to all come and visit me, and the 13 of us are going to sit in a room. That's great. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to that. And the fact that that was their initiative to ask for that meeting, I take as a great sign of the partnership we're going to build together. All right. I really appreciate you both. President Schill, I'll let you have the last word here. You know, you've gone through this process. You, you know, you're the chair of a group. You, you don't speak for... For, you don't make the decision for everybody, but what has the process been like for you, President Schill? It, I, I found it to be a great, a great process. The search, uh, the search firm did a terrific job, and my colleagues and I uh, really used this uh, process as a learning opportunity and sort of a priority-setting opportunity. And um, I think that uh, we made a. I will pat ourselves on the back. We made a great choice in George, and we're excited to have him uh, lead our, our Pac-12 uh, to greater glory in the future.
Well, there they are. Commissioner George Klyovkov and President Michael Schill. That was in May of 2021. That was really interesting, uh, especially John's questions about the uh, the San Francisco headquarters. Of course, we all know that, uh, what, 10 months after that, nine months after that, the Pac-12 announced that they are leaving downtown San Francisco when the lease expires. And the new headquarters, well, sort of nowhere because there will be a conference office, but most employees allowed to work fully remotely. Stephen, very interesting stuff there. Yeah, and at the start they mentioned Herm Edwards, like, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff's fun to me, and yeah, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, we've been talking about that, you know, the, just the headquarters being down there in the Bay Area being so expensive and so unnecessary, right? And now it seems yeah. like the Pac-12 really is represented a lot in Vegas. You know, that's where the basketball tournament is, that's where the uh, you know, football uh, championship game is. I think that's kind of what people associate with the Pac-12 now is how they're out in Vegas, and you know, Klyovkov is a guy that's been around Vegas, and, and mm-hmm. you could really like sense that in the interview as well. Yeah, and you know, the other issue brought up in that conversation, NIL. It's interesting. Here we are in December of 2022. NIL's still there, but of course, uh, no one at the time knew that USC and UCLA were going to be uh, dipping out for the Big Ten uh, major shockwaves to the conference. The TV deal, we were all aware of that. It's still out there. There's there's some rumblings. Amazon, to varying degrees, going to be involved. Uh, There was a piece on The Athletic talking about that maybe they would actually get the majority of sports if ESPN didn't want to pay what Klyovkov was hoping per school. And this is all speculation, but the number that I saw out there was about $40 per school. I don't think that's going to happen. That would certainly be a win financially for the Pac-12 at $40 Because, I mean, at the Big Ten, you're looking at, what, $34 yeah. million? Uh, So it'd be difficult for the Pac-12 to get more than that. But uh, I would not mind Pac-12 football, basketball being on prime. I know some of the schools losing maybe those ESPN or CBS games in the basketball sense. I'm thinking like Arizona State or something like that might be a little ticked off. But uh, I would love just a one-stop shop to find all the Pac-12 sports streaming that I wanted to. All right, well, go away, come back. That was a fantastic conversation here on The Best of the Bald Face Truth. Up next talk a little college football shall we Oregon and Utah played a big big game just last month of course uh the way things shook out maybe it wasn't as impactful as Oregon fans thought it was going to be but we had Utah coach Kyle Whittingham on the show November 16th you're going to hear that next on the best of the bald face truth you're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. This is the best of the bald-faced truth. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn bringing you some of the best conversations over the last year plus on this very show, you heard previously from George Klyovkov and Michael Schill later in the program. Of course, we're going to have Trent Bray. Uh, we're going to have John Canzano himself on the Dan Patrick show. Michael Llewellyn, when uh, Phil Knight made his bid uh, to buy the Blazers. Michael Llewellyn, uh, former Blazers employee, former Nike employee. He is just perfect uh, to talk about the uh, sort of the inner workings of that stuff. We'll have that as well later in the show. But, of course, if you go back to last month, you have the Oregon Ducks. They fall to Washington. Bo Nix gets hurt. CFP, Dream is dead. 
Pac-12 championship dream is alive. Rose Bowl dream is alive. But they have to get through Utah. At the time, the Ducks are ranked 12th. Utah is ranked 10th. Hobbled Bo Nix has to get up and take on Utah. And he had himself a nice game. Remember that game? He could barely move. Still managed to throw for a touchdown, nearly 300 yards. But actually, it was Oregon's defense. I think they had three interceptions of Cam Rising in that game. And they managed to get through. And we're all thinking, well, all they have to do now is just beat Oregon State. And they're in, baby. Uh, of course, the Beavers had a little something to say about that to Oregon. And the opposite was for Utah. It was like they had to win to even have a right. chance. They lose. We're like, oh, well, they're out of it. And then ultimately they end up going to Vegas, beating USC, getting them out of the college football playoff. Yeah, like it was a very interesting time because it's like we thought it was the opposite things. Right? Yeah. Utah had to win out. And then they're in Oregon. They could maybe afford to lose, but you know they get back in. But no, Utah got in there, and it was a very weird game because you're right, Bo Nix, The spread, you know, the point spread just adjusted so quickly throughout uh-huh. the week with the Bo New or Bo Nix injury news or the unnews that we heard. And then we heard players come out and say that, well, you know, next man up, they're going to be ready. It was so unknown. And then Bo Nix comes out and has a really nice first half, especially. It, it was a yeah, uh, it was a good time in Kyle Whittingham, you know. He had a lot to say to John you know, before the game. Yeah, he did. So just before this game, November 16th, uh, before the Utes took on Oregon at Autzen Stadium, John Canzano had a conversation with Utah coach Kyle Whittingham. We bring it to you now on the Best of the BFT. Well, first of all, I think there's some things that have to align. Uh, you got to stay healthy, and, and we've uh, done a pretty good job of that this season and had had uh, you know a minimal amount of uh, guys missing games. So that's that's helped out. But uh, I think the key is just being consistent in uh, your approach and not getting too high and too low and, and just uh, trying to maintain an even keel and, and uh, having your players – you know, go through the preparation process uh, consistently each week, and and uh, they know what to expect, and and uh, you know that's pretty much the long and short of it. The uh, you know, how do you take the temperature of a team? I'm always curious because you have so many players; they're all different. You know, it's not like you could send out a a group email. I doubt they would even respond to an email. But it like give me an idea of how you kind of figure out where your team is on a day to day basis uh, mentally. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. Good question. Um, I would say, first of all, you know, we have a leadership council that I meet with throughout the season, and, and again to get the you know the the pulse of the team, as you mentioned, and and uh, trying to uh, you know uncover any issues that may be going on that I'm not aware of. And then uh, same thing with our captains. I, I do the leadership council once every three or four weeks, and the captains we have a weekly meeting, and uh, again just pick their brain and anything that's on their mind or, or concerns that they may have, and and. Uh, uh, for me, anyway, that's a good way to stay tuned in to, to what's going on internally and, and any uh, problems that may be needing addressed. Oregon uh, obviously has a question about who they will play at quarterback. You've been there at different points in your career. Uh, how do you prepare for a team when, when you're not sure what they're going to be and what they're going to look like on offense? Yeah, well, first of all, I think we'd be shocked if it's not Bo Nix. I mean, he is such a tough competitor and and uh, a guy that you know he's gonna you know he's just gonna be there if at all possible. And we we were planning for that, but but uh, if not, then you got to shift to Plan B and and uh, you know know the backup and know his strengths and weaknesses and and be able to adjust your calls and your and your play accordingly. But uh, you know we're, we're going in thinking that it's going to be uh, Bo and and uh, do our best to. Try 
try to slow them down. The uh, the uh, information that coaches give out or don't give out, it's become really interesting to watch college football where more and more programs, I think, are playing it close to the vest. It, are you in favor of some kind of uniform injury report, or do you kind of just, you, you came up in this world, do you, do you like sort of the uncertainty, you're comfortable with it? Well, first of all, we're one of those schools that have played it close to the vest ever since I've been the head coach, and my, my philosophy has always been if you don't have to tip your hand or divulge anything, why would you? <laughs> and uh, it doesn't make any sense, but that being said, if there was a uniform policy or procedure much like the NFL, then we'd be happy to conform with it. And so it's just a situation where if there isn't a reason or a, a mandate to, to uh, you know, let everyone know about what's going on injury-wise, then, then why do it? But but if it's a level playing field and everyone is required to to uh, divulge, then uh, we'd be okay as well. A lot of paranoia, too, out there. And I, yeah. I, I've been around, I've been around basketball coaches and football coaches. Some of them are like, you know, who's that person sweeping down on the concourse? Find out who they are. Like, where do you think that stems from? Uh, competitive nature, probably. You know, everyone's worried that someone's getting a little bit of a leg up on you by some sort of intel or, or whatever the case may be. But, but yeah, that uh, what you say is exactly right. And that, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, coaches have that phobia, I guess you could say, and a little bit of uh, overprotectiveness, maybe. I'm looking at the, the action on the sideline. Like, people are holding up shields and signs, and there's multiple, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, personnel. That, you know, I think we could tell from the press box that some of these people are not involved in the in the system. But it's funny. Um, hey, you know, these books always come out like the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Does Kyle Whittingham have a habit that you do every day that uh, is just that pops into mind when I ask that? Well, without a doubt. But first of all, that book was written by Stephen R. Covey, who's Britt Covey's grandfather, who's, <laughs> who was on our team for, for several years. And so that's, you know, we know about that book very well. In fact, uh, I grew up in the same neighborhood as Britt's uh, grandfather. So uh, he was a great man and, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, a very smart guy. But but anyways, me personally, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. Absolutely. Uh, I believe in routine and structure. And, and I think players thrive on that. I think that's, that, you know, they, they really... Uh, like to have the consistency of a of a structured program and and uh, you know know what to expect each day and and uh, you know it just becomes a situation where they get into uh, almost a zone during the season and and uh, if you throw that thing out of whack then then uh, it can uh, upset the balance of what you got going on so yeah I, I have a routine and it's uh, you know a daily routine on Monday and then a Tuesday and a Wednesday so every day is not the same but every Monday's the same every Tuesday's the same and so forth. Do you have like, are you a morning coffee guy? Read the paper? What do you do? <laughs> no, get in and staff meeting right out of the gate. We have 7 a.m. staff meeting and and uh, not a coffee drinker and, and uh, not a paper reader. So get right into the film work and every, anything that, uh, you know, that is the task at hand. That film work has changed, hasn't it? Now that you can have oh. it on an iPad and whatnot. Wow. Yes, dramatically. When I first got into coaching, we had uh, 16 millimeter film. I mean, that it was it was cumbersome. It was hard to uh, you know just deal with. And you know, recruiting wise, trying to get film on a recruit was nearly impossible. Then we moved to to uh, VHS format, and that made it a little bit easier, but still. Uh, you know, really not that accessible. And then we moved into the the uh, digital age, and now it's uh, you know all computerized, where you you just push a button and you can have every 
piece of film or fact on a recruit or a team or you know an opponent that you want. So it's it's crazy how accessible everything is now. Last weekend, nine of the twelve Pac-12 schools started a transfer quarterback. Is this what you expect to see moving forward? Ideally, you want to develop a guy, but what do you think? What do you think's happening here with quarterbacks? Yeah, that's probably the most. Uh, affected position by the transfer portal and and uh, that seems to be a room the quarterback room needing to be rebuilt pretty much on an annual basis with with uh, guys if they don't see the you know the daylight and in, in, you know as far as playing time then most quarterbacks are going to try to get into a situation where they can uh, get some playing time and so I think that'll become uh, an increasing trend and and you're right I think uh, nationally it's uh, our recruiting coordinator the other day told me that it's approaching 50 percent or right out around 50 percent of starting quarterbacks in the country uh, are transfer portal guys. Again on film, what are, what do you see them doing now versus maybe early in the year? Well, I see them doing you know an exceptional job offensively, uh, leading the conference in offense as far as total yardage. Uh, it all goes through the quarterback. He's a tremendous athlete um, and a perfect fit for what they're doing. And I've been a Bo Nix fan for since he was at Auburn. You know, I, did, I don't know him personally. We didn't recruit him. Uh, you know, we don't recruit much in that part of the country. But I watched him at Auburn and thought, you know, I just had an, a game on and just uh, you know a couple of years back and thought this guy is really good and really competitive and my kind of guy and then of course I wasn't really excited when I found out he was transferring to Oregon because yeah. I knew I knew how uh, capable he was and but uh, they're doing a great job and and primarily they're a run first team and that's what they're doing exceptionally well you know 240 yards a game and and uh, I still am old school and believe that if you can run the football on offense and defend the run on defense you're always going to have a chance uh, but you know that being said they're throwing the ball exceptionally well in addition I mean he's a 73 percent completion percentage and so there really is no weakness on that offense they get an outstanding offensive line quarterback I, i've talked about uh, the running backs run hard and then with violence they finish runs uh they get what they need out of the tight ends you know they employ a tight end uh, most every snap and the receivers make big plays down the field so they got it they got it all going on andy ludwig your offensive coordinator i think he's done a hell of a job i've known him for years uh, he's got to be salivating over what washington did to oregon's defense that said, you, you expect some adjustments. How do you game plan knowing that they're going to self-scout and adjust? Yeah, it's a cat-and-mouse game and a, and a chess match. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, okay, they know this, and they know that we know that, and we know that they know that we know. And, you know, you just keep going back and forth and trying to, trying to uh, stay one step ahead. And so I think the key is to not outsmart yourself and not get uh, too, uh, not take, too much of a departure from what you do week to week and, and Andy's very good at that you know very steady and you know we have our core set of offensive plays that we run weekly and then he adds you know as per the next opponent what he thinks will work uh, a few new wrinkles and, and that's what you do you can't you can't uh, have wholesale changes from week to week offensively and and uh, we you know have done a good job of not doing that before I let you go, uh, you know, there were a few years ago as you guys were making the transition to the Pac-12, you know, it wasn't like conference championship time, but you had administration, university president, you had support. What did that mean to you? Oh, it means everything. If you don't have support uh, from above, then you're just, 
you know, beating a dead horse. There's no way you can survive. And so we've uh, been able to upgrade our stadium, uh, our practice facilities, our, our uh, you know, facility where our offices are and locker room and weight room and all that type of thing. And uh, budget has increased. And so we've grown as a program uh, ever since we joined the Pac-12. And we had to. It's either grow or die. And and uh, so we're very grateful that we've been able to keep pace and, and uh, continue to uh, be competitive. All right, Coach, uh, any questions for me before I let you go? No questions. No questions? All right. right. Thank you. You're back. All right. I'll see you Saturday at the stadium. Thank you. Take care. Take care. That's Utah coach Kyle Whittingham on the BFT on November 16th before the Utes lost Oregon 20-17. to It's interesting. Look, he was correct. He prepared for Bo Nix. I remember debating whether or not Bo Nix was going to play in that game. I, I just had a feeling he would. And he talks about how, look, Oregon is a running team. It's interesting. Oregon, not a big rushing uh, performance in that game. Only 50, uh, 59 rushing yards. Uh, Whittington had 53. Bucky Irving, only 20 yards. And then, of course, you have Knicks getting sacked. Dante Thornton uh, losing some yardage as well. So, you know, it seems like they played the right game plan. But Bo Nix, he couldn't move, but he was able to get just enough done in that game. He did throw a late pick, but it did not hurt Oregon. Had 287 yards. They beat Utah. They kept the Pac-12 championship hopes alive. But, of course, they knew that they had to get through Oregon State, which they did not do. Utah thought they were dead in the water. And, of course, they uh, they end up uh, handling USC just dismantling USC and uh, moving on. So real topsy-turvy uh, end of the season there, Stephen. Yeah, and, you know, when Kyle Winningham says, you know, he's a structure guy, he's a mm. scheduled guy, he likes to keep things consistent. I mean, isn't that just like the perfect definition of Utah football and the way that they play and you know what you're going to get out of them, you know, game in and game out, just consistent, well-played, well-coached football. Like, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I'd love to hear. And uh, it just kind of just perfectly represents, I think, Utah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm not going to say I expected uh, Stephen Covey and the seven habits of uh, highly effective people to come up, but am I shocked that it come to, came up? Not uh, particularly. That's uh, that's the Utah Utes football program in a nutshell. All right, we'll take a break, come back on the other side, wrap up the first hour. Of course, later in the show, we've got so much. John Canzano's appearance on the Dan Patrick Show, Michael Llewellyn, Trent Bray, Johnny Avello, uh, just the crew in JC talking about the news that Deion Sanders is headed to Colorado as their next head coach. We've got all that next on the best of the bald face truth. You're listening to the best of the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back into the best of the bald face truth. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn, along with you. We're going to get the interviews uh, continuing in the next hour. Of course, we're revisiting a lot of the great conversations, but that doesn't mean there's not sports news today. Still so much to talk about. Damian Lillard, now the leading scorer in Trailblazers history. Top Clyde in more than 100 fewer games. Congratulations to him. By the way, Stephen Vaughn, how smart, not that I'm happy about it, but how smart do we sound today saying, look, this might be a trap game. Here are all the reasons this is a trap game, and Shea Gilgis Alexander is going to go nuts. Both those things happened. Yeah, we we called that yesterday. The thing is, is you know, Shea, 
he didn't shoot great, but he still got 30 plus Slow points. start. Yeah, slow yeah. start, and he still got over 30 points. Like, that's the how good he is. And, yeah, it was just one of those spots where you could tell, like, the Blazers were going to struggle defensively mm-hmm. without use of Nurkic, and that reared its ugly head. Drew Eubanks, you know, he, he's good at what he does. He's not great defensively all the time, and uh, the Thunder took advantage of it. So, yeah, you know, good thing for Dame to get the record. I thought it was a little uh, anticlimactic to get it on a free throw. Well. It was. I agree. He 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 was shooting really well. Yeah. He was one bucket away, and then he and then he missed three straight shots. So the free throw on the road kind of a bummer. Yeah, he was going for it. He was going for one of those yeah. pick and roll fadeaway threes, and they just couldn't get it. So you know the call by Calabro was great just because it's Calabro, but anticlimactic with the free throw. Yeah, without a doubt. But congratulations to him. And by the way, very classy of the Thunder to uh to congratulate and put it up there. Nice. Ovation from the Zombie Sonics crowd, uh, and there he is. I mean, look, and he's just going to continue to add to that record. But yeah, Shea Gilgis Alexander, little bit of a slow start in the first quarter. He ends up with 35 points and the buzzer beater on the baseline. On can I just call that atrocious defense? Yeah, I think you. I think it's safe to say it was atrocious. Wide, wide open shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. He just grabs it, turns to the baseline, and just sinks the easy. What would you call that? Like a 14-foot baseline jumper? Yeah, about 14. Yeah, that with a level of defense. Like that's the kind of uh, shot that I'm taking when I play pickup, and that's the level of defense that I'm being defended with when I'm taking that shot playing pickup. That exact play I did to my son yesterday when we were shooting around in the gym. I posted him up, turned around, and just shot over him. Like that, I did the exact same thing. (laughs) That's that's what the Blazers did defensively. But uh, would Dame become an all-time leading scorer? Is it officially making him the best players of all time? I mean, it has to, doesn't it? I know, I know look, winning counts for something. Yeah. It does. But if when you say, say, Bill Walton's the greatest blazer of all time, well, okay, he was MVP that year, and uh, he won the only championship. But how much does it really count? Because otherwise, okay, Bill Russell's the greatest of all time, and after that it's Robert Ory, Steve Kerr, and Derek Fisher. No. Yeah. I mean, individual performance has to count. Clyde still kind of in the middle, made it to two finals. I, I personally go with Clyde. I think Clyde is defensively, he was awesome as well. So yeah, that and, adds to it. And if it wasn't for MJ, he would have been the best guard in the league for a two or three year period. Personally, I'm going with Dame just because it's, I mean, you talk about the scoring average, you look at the iconic moments, uh, but it, it is still a conversation. But congrats to Damian Lillard. I'm excited to see where that total ends up. Our number one of the best of the bald face truth in the books coming up next. We're going to uh, react uh, December 5th, talking about the Deion Sanders hiring at Colorado. This is the best of the BFT on the BFT Radio Network. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Welcome in. It's sort of John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm Peter Sampson. He's Stephen Vaughn. We're bringing you the best of the BFT, revisiting some great conversations. Last hour, you heard from George Klyovkov right when he was named the new commissioner of the Pac-12. Of course, President Michael Schill joined him. We played two parts of that long conversation. Very cool stuff. Uh, We heard from Kyle Whittingham, coach of the Utah Utes, uh, back in November, just before their game against Oregon at Autzen Stadium. A hobbled Bo Nix led Oregon to a 20-17 victory. 
in what was a, a really interesting uh, sort of uh, acceleration of the Pac-12 season as everyone kind of ramped up to uh, see where they were going to finish up. Uh, the Ducks had just had their CFP hopes dashed. Pac-12 championship still in sight. Of course, uh, Oregon State handled business uh, the following week and uh, made sure that that wasn't going to happen. And just an amazing game. I mean, it's it still stuns me when I think about that game, how in control Oregon was. I mean, it's literally my job, and I almost turned that game off early in the third quarter. Yeah, I mean, for Oregon State to be down by three-plus scores and then decide, you know what, we're not going to throw the football the rest of the game. And to win, like it worked out, and they win the game without throwing the football. Like that, just you know, it showed the the way they could impose their physicality, even on really good teams like the Ducks. Is you got to give the Beavers a lot of credit in that game to follow their game plan and, and go with the you know the style of their coaching staff, right? Like that, you know, I talked about last uh, last hour, like Kyle Whittingham saying he loves the structure and the schedule, and that defines the Utah program. Well, Jonathan Smith, Trent Bray, like. Those guys are tough dudes, and Oregon State really, you know, tapped into that with their coaching staff, and that's how they got the win against Oregon. It, it was a good win for the Beavs, ten wins on the season. Yeah. I'm excited for next year, man. Yeah, very cool. And again, I don't root. All I want is a good game when they play each other. And man, we got one. By the way, I didn't have a chance to say this, but when Oregon took care of, or excuse me, Oregon State took care of Florida in the Vegas Bowl, I'm so happy that Tristan Jebbia got to play. Mm-hmm. Man, never mm-hmm. forget. I mean, and look, Jebbia super hyped. Out out of high school, obviously never fully kind of put it together at the college level. But again, the the last time that Oregon State had a beat Oregon in the Civil War, man, Jebbia gave it his all, and he suffered that injury to get them to the one-yard line. Of course, Chance Nolan comes in, takes his first snap, and punches it in. But, uh, I mean, Tristan Jebbia, I mean... <sighs> It's such a shame. I was rooting for the kid, you know, once he came out of, out of Nebraska and had uh, transferred to Oregon State. Never able to do it. But it was rad that he got a couple series in that bowl game. Yeah, and to be voted captain and knowing you're the back of a quarterback. And then we didn't even know he'd be the third stringer. Third but stringer yeah. He was the third string quarterback, but still voted captain by his teammates. Like, that just shows, you know, the, the respect that his teammates had and did love him. So, yeah, it was awesome to see Jonathan Smith put him out there. You know, he just said, well, he had a good week of practice. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. He probably did, but, you know, he, he he deserved to get a little run because, you know, part of the turnaround, we, we, we forget to mention sometimes how bad Oregon State really was under Gary Anderson, Corey Hollick, those guys. It was bad, and Jebby is part of that turnaround. Like you talked about that game against the Ducks. He didn't get the touchdown, but he played his heart out in that game. And he was really part of the turnaround. And now, you know, now with Oregon State being so good, it was good to get a little shout-out back to him in his final game. Yeah, happy to see that. Uh, I don't recall. I, I know he and uh, Ben Goldbrunson were pushing the game ball back and forth. John Canzano wrote about that at johnconzano.com. I don't know if he mentioned who actually ended up with the game ball. I hope it was Jebbia. I, I thought I saw it was Jebbia, but I, think, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I think it was left open-ended. If you want to correct me, go to johnconzano.com and uh, go ahead and reread that column. Uh, of course, uh, so much going on in the Pac-12, and of course, some of the biggest news of the year, Dion Sanders. I did not think this was going to happen. I thought he was leveraging Colorado for a different deal, but he has agreed to come in and be the new coach of the Buffaloes. He was getting 
everyone fired up. He he was practically giving an inspirational speech at his press conference. And uh, I don't think I was part of this conversation. I think it was you and uh, Judah Nubia along with John Canzano. You guys reacted to this when it was fresh, brand new news. So here is JC and the rest of the crew reacting to Deion Sanders being hired at Colorado. This took place December 5th. I know a little bit about Oregon's offensive coordinator hire. We'll talk about that this hour as well. Will Stein is going to be the next man in at the University of Oregon as the play caller. 33-year-old, comes to Oregon from the University of Texas, San Antonio, played his college ball at Louisville, uh, played for Charlie Strong, among others at Louisville. Uh, Really good reputation. I called around, asked some people, what do you think of this guy? Who is he? And they said, uh, good hire, uses his players well. Also, um, uh, he knows how to uh, uh, use some, uh, he's very innovative, at least the film that they've seen of him, very innovative stuff that's getting passed around. So I think it's a kind of an edgy, little fun, outside-the-box hire by Oregon. And I'm curious, too, like, you know, we're talking a little bit about Deion Sanders going to Colorado. I'm wondering if like Arizona State or even Oregon is sitting back going, damn, why didn't we think of that? Like, why didn't we do that sooner? Tell me what you think of the Deion Sanders hire by Colorado. What does it do for this conference? Will it work? Will he win? Or is it just splashy and for now? Even if it's just splashy and for now, I still can't blame Colorado. Judah Newby, what'd you make of the hire? Steven, what'd you think of Deion Sanders to Colorado? Personally, I was surprised, Um, and then when it all became official, I was like, should I have been surprised? Uh, I guess I could talk myself into it. Uh, I was surprised because I thought Dion could have done better (laughs) from a profile standpoint, but um, maybe Dion has got a little bit more of a plan than I would have given him credit for. You know, maybe he's thinking that Colorado is a natural next step in my job trajectory over the long haul rather than being like a final destination. Do you think that's possible? Yes. I I think my I, I share like back to your original point about being surprised that he couldn't do better. I thought that too initially I thought he might be using Colorado to get a better offer. But then the more I thought about it, you know, that's FCS football. That's the equivalent of Portland State, you know, coach Bruce Barnum being hired by Oregon or Oregon State. It's quite a leap. And they would ha- pass over a ton of candidates to get there. No offense to Bruce Barnum. He's a, he's a great football coach, and he may end up with a better job himself here in this coaching cycle. But um, I I was surprised that he didn't have better options, and then the more I thought about it, he is a risk. I mean, he hasn't done it. And he is dealing with academic standards at Colorado now that he didn't have at the at the job he had before. That said, I'll be really curious to see how he does in the portal and whatnot. But how far can Colorado really fall, right? Like, it's already down enough, so if Dion fails and isn't a good coach, it can't go much worse than it has been. So I think the fact that Dion's coming in and he's talking about, you know, getting his own guys in there and he's going to use the transfer portal, like, he's going to build his own program. And if it works, it could be really good because he does have um, the energy and you know, the the reputation of being one of the best players of all time in the NFL and in college and have that personality that is what you need in a college football coach. It's not necessarily about X's and O's in college football anymore. It's about getting good recruits and keeping those recruits, right? And I think Dion can recruit, you know, his tail off. He got guys at Jackson State. He can get guys in the Pac-12. So I think it's a good hire. 
Uh, I'm not completely sold if it's going to work yet, but if I'm Colorado, I would be very excited because I think this is a chance for them to get back to where they were, uh, where this was once a really good program. I mean, think back to the, the Fiesta Bowl when they played the Ducks with Joey Harrington. Like, this team was right there for the BCS championship. And now, you know, I think not that it's going to be this next season with Dion, but the expectations are going to be start getting higher where Colorado is expected to win. I think it makes sense for both sides because on one hand, Colorado could have hired just these same old retread head coaches that you see getting opportunities out there. And instead they went for something splashy outside the box, different, like, you know, Hey, I started the show by talking about the transfer portal and how ridiculous it is. There's going to be nobody better equipped to be the Pied Piper of the transfer portal than Deion Sanders at a power five conference university. He doesn't have proof of performance to sell. He's got himself to sell, and he's always done that. He's one of the great salesmen, and I think that works for them. For Dion, this is a chance for him probably to use it as a stepping stone, as has been pointed out. But also, I think Colorado would be okay with that, saying, look, you're going to elevate us from a one-win program to, you know, can you get us to relevancy, and we don't even care if you move on to the next job. I think the job he probably ultimately wants was is Florida State, but he's bringing his son, who is a quarterback. He's probably bringing his other son who's a defensive back. He is bringing credibility to a program that has been a laughing stock. And so I get it, man. I covered Jerry Tarkanian. You know, I covered him not at UNLV, but at Fresno State. And Fresno State made the same trade. It said, look, we know this isn't UNLV. We know that it's going to be a bit of a sideshow. But, man, it's going to bring some credibility to our program. We're going to get players we never imagined we could get, and they did. And suddenly, people were talking about them as a Final Four team. Yeah, this think, is like my yeah. I'll think about it this way: like conference championship games just happened. We're talking about the CFP, but Colorado, who went one and eleven, is being talked yeah. about almost as much as anything that's happening in the college football world. Like that is how relevant they are now, just because of one hire that they made. It's and it reminds me a little bit of Mike Leach to Washington State, but Mike Leach had big time proof of performance as a coach. He just had some baggage that people were going, "Okay, is he worth it?" The questions that are about Deion Sanders here. I think there's still some questions about Dan Lanning and his age. And, you know, we saw some mistakes, some errors in coaching this year that were that looked like youthful, inexperienced errors. Uh, now Dan Lanning has added Will Stein to his staff. Um, you know, Stein's 33 years old. He's going young, too. I think we have a very young coaching staff at Oregon. I think there's some different kinds of questions, though, for Dion because – you know, look, the the thing I always wonder about when you see a celebrity put in any kind of leadership role, whether it's politics or business or uh, being promoted as a head coach uh, and hired as a head coach, I always wonder, are they really in it to do the work? Like when Terry Porter was hired by the University of Portland, I went, all right, is this a fundraising hire or is Terry Porter really want to work? You know, we saw Clyde Drexler uh, at Houston go play golf instead of coaching his team. Um, I think Deion Sanders proved at Jackson State that he's there to work. And you don't go undefeated in that level. You don't win back-to-back -back conference championships at that level without working. But I also think his genius is going to be in the recruiting portal. It's going to be in recruiting and the transfer portal, rather. And I think we've already seen it at Jackson State. Now, can he, can he replicate that at Colorado where the academic standards are going to be higher? I'm curious about that, but I think it's I, if I'm Colorado, and I have a chance between go to the retread pile or take a shot on Coach Prime, I would do what Colorado's doing, and they're doing it at six million dollars a year. It's going to put Deion Sanders on par with Kyle Whittingham, 
as the number two or number three highest paid coach in the Pac-12 conference. And look, it, for people who don't know, the portal opened today. Uh, a flood of players jumped into the portal. There's going to be more. There's going to be so much movement, it's going to be ridiculous. Uh, the players now have 45 days uh, in this window to be in the portal or out of the portal. I think that's too many days. I think the window is too big. Uh, and then comes uh, May, there's a second window that opens. It's a shorter window, but it opens right at spring football for players to go, hey, it doesn't look like I'm going to play here. I'm going to opt out. But it's it's messy. Yep, it is messy. Uh, still a lot of movement in the portal. That was uh, JC and crew discussing Deion Sanders being hired at Colorado. But speaking of the portal NIL recruiting, uh, tomorrow we'll be bringing you a best of edition of the BFT that will include, since uh, it's National Signing Day tomorrow, we will have Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning's comments. Uh, I think they're scheduled for 11 o'clock. We'll get sound and we'll uh, we'll give you that as well. All right, we'll go away, come back on the other side. More of the best of the bald-faced truth. Of course, sports wagering is more ubiquitous than ever. And we had Johnny Avello from DraftKings to break it all down. And he will join us on the best of the bald-faced truth next. You're listening to the best of the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back to the best of the bald faced truth. Peter Samson, Stephen Vaughn. Sports betting is everywhere, it's a giant industry. Of course, uh, DraftKings uh, made its way recently into the state of Oregon, taking over the operations for the uh, Oregon Sports Lottery. And uh, JC, earlier this year, this was in January, January 12th to be specific, he had Johnny Avello from DraftKings to talk about uh, that change, uh, the industry in general, how big it's getting. It was a really great conversation, and we bring that to you now. DraftKings on the scene. I'm happy DraftKings is on the scene. Johnny Avello is the director of sportsbook operations for DraftKings, and he's joining us now. Johnny, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I, I wanted to maybe pepper you with some questions, help people kind of understand what is happening with this scoreboard in DraftKings. Where do we start with this conversation? Well, first of all, the, the people that live in the state of Oregon are so lucky, uh, and I say that because you're getting a the best app on the market and with so many uh, different types of offerings, so many different things to bet. And, and I've been in the business, in the sportsbook business for over 35 years, and this is the best app I've seen. Uh, it's easy to navigate, easy to fund, um, and they're going to really enjoy this uh, compared to what they've had in the past. Give us an idea. You know, you're familiar with the DraftKings, uh, you know, sort of the the functionality of the app itself. Uh, what are we talking about as far as wagering and and what kind of uh, offerings? Here's kind of a way I, I can explain it to you when it comes to, let's talk about football, which every, everybody likes football, right? And so uh, a lot of people say, boy, I can't wait to Super Bowl. That's the most exciting time of the year because uh, they, you know, there's props. Vegas always used to put up all these props. Everybody used to travel to Las Vegas, which that's where I live, and I've been here for 43 years. Um, you know, and so people like that all those proposition bets because of that one day. Well, we do those proposition bets on every single NFL game every single week. 
And so you'll see those throughout the playoffs. You'll certainly see them on Super Bowl. Uh, and we have when you go to our site, you'll see all these specials we put up, like playoff specials, like most receiving yards by you know a, a certain receiver on uh, one of the you know the teams remaining, most passing yards, most rushing yards. Then we have these what we call these wild card specials, where um, you know teams that score the most points and and uh, the conference to score the most points. I mean, it's just endless. Um, and in some jurisdictions, and I don't know if you're going to be one of those, we do other things like, uh, you know, entertainment props, like Academy Awards. We have Academy Awards up now on our, in some of our jurisdictions that have accepted it. So, uh, you know, not, not all jurisdictions take the same things, but uh, it's endless of what we have up there. Johnny Avello with us, Director of Sportsbook Operations for DraftKings. Johnny, uh, you know, as part of your job, I know you help set lines. I know you help establish markets. Um, how does that that vary from market to market? Or is DraftKings setting one line, like, for example, in the Raiders-Bengals game, and that's the same line you get in every state? That's the way it works, yeah. We set it, we set it and it goes across the, the entire network. Um, you know, and... I know some operators like to take a team from a certain place and make the line higher because, you know, they know they're going to play. That's not the way to do business. So we like to keep it consistent across, uh, you know, the entire network. So if your jurisdiction allows the offerings that we have, then we send them out that way. If they don't allow it, then we don't. You know, we, we comply to what the regulators want and don't want. So um, it's all there. It's just that we, we have to, you know, we have to comply with what the, the state themselves want. This NFL wildcard weekend, where's all the action right now? Um, great games, aren't they? Uh, you know, we, we start off on the Saturday with the Raiders, Bengals, and, the, and uh, right now the Raiders are taking a little bit of that action. Uh, Bills, Pats, the Pats have been taking early action. Um, Tampa, Philly. Uh, I know that line's going to go up because they're going to they're going to bet Tampa. They do bet Tampa. Tampa's bet every single week. 49ers, Cowboys is kind of like a uh, even action both sides right now. Uh, Chiefs getting some action over the Steelers. That's a big line, 12 and a half. Probably see 13 on that. And then there's an isolated game on a Monday night, which is kind of cool. I love isolated games, especially to keep the playoff action going. Cardinals are at the Rams. Uh, that game opened four and a half. That's down to three and a half. So early action is on the Cardinals in that one. We're talking to Johnny Avello, DraftKings Director of Sportsbook Operations. You mentioned sort of, uh, you know, jur different jurisdictions. One of the frustrations here in the state of Oregon is that the state legislature has not cleared the way for wagering on collegiate uh, events. It's a real uh, issue because people are going, what gives? Why can't you bet on a college game in the state of Oregon? Uh, it, I like that DraftKings is on the scene because it gives some. There's an entity there now that can lobby the lawmakers. Any? Have you seen other states soften their stance on similar issues, Johnny? Yeah, you know, uh, all all the states we're in do take uh, college sports. Um, you know, some don't take college like propositions, player props, but they all do. T and some don't take the uh, you know the the local the teams that are within the state. Like in your state, like an like Oregon, Oregon State, they you know you couldn't take action on them. But everything else, uh, all the other college teams, they do. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the, the state soften their stance on that, and uh, you know maybe over time they get used to it. Uh, maybe they will. So um, 
you know, I'm here to answer any questions that they, they would ever have being in the business over 35 years. Yeah, we need to get you in front of the lawmakers in this state. Uh, it, it's interesting because you've been part of this. You talk about the time you've been part of it, and it used to be, hey, you know, I had to be in Vegas, right? I had to go. How has sort of DraftKings and other operators being able to use mobile wagering, how has that changed sort of the industry in general? Yeah, I think you said it. Uh, what, what's happened now is you don't you don't need to travel to Las Vegas to to get a bet now. You can get it from you know right in your own state. And so what that'll change the landscape for a lot of things moving forward. Super Bowl parties, uh, March Madness parties, you know, uh, even Kentucky Derby. When it comes to horse racing, people stay home and can do that too. So um, yeah, the, Vegas is still a great destination. Great amenities. You know, great things to offer, but when it comes to sports wager, and it's just growing, and it's uh, it's growing, and it's going to continue to grow. Johnny Avello with us, DraftKings Director of Sportsbook Operations. Um, you know, it, this is all new to the state of Oregon, and I know that it sounds, you know, the, the Oregon Lottery Scoreboard app sort of came on the scene, and, and people, uh, people really embraced it. And, and you know, I, I think people are excited to see what DraftKings can do. Can you speak to that a little bit? sort of the experience, what does DraftKings bring to the table as they come in and, and begin to operate? Well, you, you have to go back when PASPA was overturned back in uh, 2018. DraftKings was the first on the scene with the sports wagering in, uh, in New Jersey. So we've been doing this for you know, a few years now and uh, pretty much know how to, how to establish props, how to get them out there so people – can wager on them in an easy manner, how to fund and how to withdraw. So, uh, you know, I just think we're, we're really good at what we do. Uh, we just launched in New York, and you know New York has 20 million people and launched without a hitch. So, um, you know, we, uh, I'm very confident in what we do, and we can do it uh, in a, at a moment's notice. Somebody told us you're going to go live in tomorrow, we're, we're ready to go. So uh, great team, uh, great technology we have. One of the frustrations with the uh, Oregon Lottery app was sort of, you know, this was their foray into it. Um, you know, the, the bugs weren't worked out. There were a lot of uh, issues in the beginning as they started ironing out, you know, how do you transfer money in? How do you place a wager? There was, there was definitely, uh, it definitely got tricky at the beginning. How, how fluid, how smooth has DraftKings been as, as you see it in the last year or so? Oh, there's no issues whatsoever. Now, we do have to get that process where they, you know, they withdraw their money or they transfer it over to DraftKings app. Um, you know, that's probably the biggest obstacle. Once we get to that point, uh, it's going to be smooth sailing. Uh, and, you know, on our app, we also offer uh, so many different things. We offer uh, the, the free pools, and I, I think they're going to be available in your – I don't know that for sure, but we offer free pools, which we put out for every jurisdiction. And what free pools are is that uh, we put up the money, the customer makes the – the, makes the bets, and if they win, uh, you know they they get the money that we have put up, and we do that on uh, you know politics and housewives show and Survivor. But there's something that all jurisdictions have been able to play into, and I hope Oregon can also participate in that. Johnny Avello, our guest uh, with DraftKings, director of sportsbook operations. How has uh, how has Vegas changed? Because you know I go there a lot, Pac-12 tournament, Pac-12 championship game, and football, and Vegas isn't hurting, and uh, has has come out, you know, in the, out of this sort of era of online wagering. It, it almost feels like the the wagering that people are doing in other states 
makes makes a trip to Vegas even more special. Yeah, that may be true. Uh, you know, in Vegas, we did start hosting a lot of the the uh, conference championships and tournaments for basketball. Now we have our own hockey team, which is very successful. A lot of people come to town to follow their team, whether you know, if you're from Chicago, they're playing in Phoenix the night before, and they're going to play in Vegas on a Saturday night. They'll make that trip. And now we have our own football team, the Raiders, uh, which has been had a successful season, made the playoffs this year. Great. I've been to a couple games. They're they're fabulous. And the whole town has really great amenities, great food, great shows. Nothing's, things are better than they, they've ever been here. Um, but uh, you, you don't need to do it any longer if you can't make the trip to get a – if you want to bet the Eagles and the Bucks this uh, Sunday, you don't have to make the trip. You don't have to bet with your bookie. You don't have to go offshore. You can do it all with the DraftKings app. All right. Johnny, I appreciate you coming on and making time for us fascinated by this and what's going on. I'm excited that DraftKings is going to be part of it because, uh, you know, it, it looks like DraftKings has done this at a, at a high level for a long time, and I think that's what this state needs. Now we need to get the state legislature on board with letting people wager on college games. That's That, that would be the icing on the cake. I'm all for it. Johnny, thank you. I appreciate you. You're welcome. That's Johnny Avello from DraftKings. This is the best of the bald face truth. That conversation, January 12th of this year. Of course, DraftKings uh, took over operations for the Oregon uh, Sports Lottery. Uh, still unable to wager on college sports in the state with DraftKings. Looking forward to that changing at some point, hopefully in the near future. All right, we'll take a break. Come back on the other side. We've got more of the best of the bald face truth. We've got a nice conversation. Uh, with Trent Bray talking about uh, the Beavers' win over Oregon. And this conversation happened November 29th when he was fresh off of his contract extension. Stick around and enjoy that. I'm Peter Sampson with Stephen Vaughn. It's the best of the BFT. You're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back. This is the best of the BFT. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn with you. And, of course, a whole lot of John Canzano this week as well. Looking forward to hearing this conversation again just about two, three weeks ago, I guess it was, November 29th. Look, the Oregon State Beavers, they beat Oregon in the rivalry game. Trent Bray, that defense, took care of business. He got a contract extension right off of that, and he joined John Canzano to talk about, about all that. Let's hear it now. Uh, it was uh, all sorts of emotions, uh, frustration to uh, joy <laughs> to just uh, – it, it was fun. It was fun to see those guys keep fighting when things didn't look good and, and, and end up making the plays we needed to to win at the end. Help us out here because I know you know your guy likes to coach from the field. Some coordinators are in the box, but what did you see happening? First of all, from your defensive standpoint, as the game sort of turned, what was it that you felt you guys were doing well, or maybe Oregon wasn't wasn't capitalizing on? Uh, well, we made a we made a couple uh, schematic adjustments to how they were attacking us, and then it, it really was we talked about it you know, on the sideline of, hey, if right now we just we're doing too many things that self-inflicted wounds. And if we just do our work and we're on our work, then, then we're, this game's going to end the way we want it to. And, and the guys did an unbelievable job buying in and, and going out and getting it done. 
Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you talk about schematic changes. I noticed, you know, Oregon had gone like five wide at one point. They were spreading you guys out. Uh, was that something you had seen them do earlier in the year, or was that something a little new? That They did a lot against Utah. Um, and then, you know, they that's kind of – that was kind of what they were trying. They were trying to find something on offense, and they had a little bit of success with it, so they stuck with it for, for a little bit there, yeah. You guys had a couple of late passes that, you know, you got you just tipped away. Or it looked like, mm-hmm. oh, if, if you don't get a finger on it. What does it mean when you got some experienced guys in the secondary who have been there and played a lot of reps? Yeah, it, it's huge because those, I mean, you look at third down and those fourth downs, I mean, it, it, guys experience and, and ability to make our guys to make those plays in those crucial moments was the game. Um, and, and we kind of talked about, you know, those third, fourth down situations, you know, that they were the difference in the Washington game not going our way. So it was a big point of emphasis for us that we got to get off the field on third down, and, and that's going to be the deciding factor in this game. It had to be really fun. I noticed your fans, I mean, they were jumping over the railing at the end of the game. <laughs> the players, there was a lot of emotion. As a coach on the field, when you see a team fight through some adversity, maybe some bad calls, definitely some bad calls, some adversity, uh, an opponent that is, you know, a credible opponent, what does that feel like as a coach? It's 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 fun to see. It's it's fun to watch. Uh, you know the the players and the, really just the joy that they have, and then all the hard work that they put in the season, um, then that week, and then to go out there and and have that game kind of end the way it did for us was, was fun to watch them. Trent Bray with us, Oregon State's defensive coordinator. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you play at, at Oregon State. You come up as a position coach. You're promoted to coordinator. Now you're extended uh, with, the, with the additional years on the contract. Um, you know, this coaching staff has got continuity. How much, how much of an advantage does that give you guys when you've got Jim Mahalchek and Jonathan and you and Brian Lindgren and you look around and it's there's just a lot of continuity that you don't see anymore on some of the staffs within the conference? Yeah, I, I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for our players. Um, I think it's you just see it so much. It's hard every year there's a new position coach or a new coordinator or a new this or that. Uh, I think it's hard for those guys. Um, so I think – we view ourselves as a developmental program. We're going to get guys in here and develop them, and I think that's what we saw on the field. There's a lot of guys that have been here for a long time that have played a lot of football for us and have gotten better and better every year and, and kind of all put it together this year. Give us an idea as you sort of forecast into next season. I know there's a bowl game, but I'm always looking at your guys and I'm going, okay, where are the needs? Um, you know, you're out recruiting. You know what you have coming in. Uh, what position groups in particular – Will it be important to get new talent and guys that go to work, you know, neck into next spring and next fall? Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously we're we're going to lose some some defensive backs that that have been really good players for us. Um, but we, we like we really like our young guys that are here, and then we're going to go out and look to uh, to kind of fill fill some holes with, with some guy some older guys. But uh, but really encouraged by you know, the last couple classes and the freshmen and sophomores that we already got on our team. So feel good about the pl- the players that we have kind of moving up in the ranks after this year. Jack Coletto and Jaden Grant. I want to talk about those two guys because you see them a lot on defense. What does Coletto mean, first of all, in the middle of that defense for you? Uh, his ability to, to do so many things. Um, you know, he's one of our better special teams player. He's a, he's a really good linebacker for us. And then he's 
you know, he's very productive on the offensive end. So it just, uh, yeah, I've, I've never been around a guy like that, that that not only can handle it mentally but can do it physically. So it's impressive to, to see him do the stuff he does. I was a little worried we weren't going to see Jaden Grant after, you know, his, his troubles and the injury, yeah. but he got there on the field. What, what has he meant for your defense? He, he's been uh, huge for us. Uh, his leadership, um, his – his ability to just communicate and, and really run the show back there, you know, puts a lot of guys at ease. I, you know, especially early in the year as, as Ryan Cooper was, you know, playing in his first couple games, um, the ability to communicate and be on the same page, you know, with, with our nickel position was, was huge. And, and so, and then he's just a really good football player. I mean, he made some plays on Saturday that, that were big time for us winning that game. You know, the fourth down stop down here on the 20, I mean, that was, just him being a smart football player and, and making that play, it was, it was impressive. Were you surprised they went fourth down inside their 30 in that situation? Or well, as a D coordinator, when you see them going for it, what are you thinking? Uh, I'm not, I wasn't really surprised. I think a lot of offenses, fourth and one is kind of a go um, for a lot of teams now. Um, and then I, I can't remember where exactly if that was after a punt had been blocked or I think they were having some trouble on the yeah. team so it might have yeah. been safer for him to do that so I, I wasn't totally surprised by that. I was surprised Nick's kept the ball given his lack of mobility and I thought when Jaden made the tackle I said that's a guy who's been in college for a hundred years like you're not fooling that guy <laughs> in that situation uh, as I watched that unfold. Um, can I ask you to put your your uh, your offensive cap on for a second because you guys on the offensive side of the ball Everybody in the stadium knew you were running the ball on offense. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have 15 runs in the fourth quarter, no passes. You, you beat them 21-3. to three. What was happening mm-hmm. offensively as you were watching the offense on the field during the fourth quarter? I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I liked it. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I just saw our offensive line um, moving those guys and creating seams. And our, our, you know, we got really good running backs and – and they did a great job of running, running hard. All you know, all those guys run extremely hard. Um, so I, I thought it was just the, really the, the strength of our team, the offensive line and running back positions. You know, showing up in those big moments. So I, it was fun to watch them them work like that. It turned into rugby at the end. I just thought I thought you know, yeah. and I looked at your guys, and it just had this feel that your guys had had enough, and you weren't losing that game when, when you were getting mm-hmm. down in on that last score. I thought there's no way they're not scoring here. It'll just be a matter of can Trent Bray's defense stop Oregon on the ensuing drive, and mm. your defense had to come up big. Tell us, take us through sort of the, you know, that sequence at the end where Oregon is threatening to to steal the game back. Yeah, it was just uh, you know they converted on a third and long, you know, early in the drive, which um, you know they they did a nice job throwing catch, and then uh, you know they got they got down there a couple penalties got them down there, and then. Yeah, it was first and five on the five, and and I thought our guys just—I mean, yeah. What can you say? They 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 knew the what the moment was about, and they went out and they weren't going to be denied. And then they made just four great plays in a row. I mean, it it was just impressive to to watch and then watch on film the next day. You know, it, it was it was great. Trent, uh, it's it's been fun to watch Jonathan grow as a head coach. You've seen this. You've been there. What makes Jonathan Smith good? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things. Um, I think number one, just, uh, you know, he's, he's very consistent 
um, in his communication um, and how he operates. Um, he's a great communicator and connector with, with our players. I think they believe in him and he believes in them. I mean, I think whenever you have that with a group of young people that, that, that believe in each other and believe in the guy in the leadership role, uh, great things can happen. I think that's probably his greatest quality is his leadership, you know, of, of young people. I saw Dennis Erickson on the sideline. What, what does it mean to you when you see, you look up and you see a guy like that who's been such an important part of what has been built, he and Mike Riley, really? Uh, you see mm-hmm. him there. He told me before the game, he said, just you watch. He said, it, it's, it's his time. And he was talking about Jonathan. And mm-hmm. Dennis Erickson ended up being right. Like, you know, he, he, what, what's that mean to you to see Erickson there? It was great. It was great. And uh, Coach Erickson's been back a couple times, and it's just been fun to see him. Um, Obviously, he's got a lot of history with this place and then with us. I mean, Coach Mahalchek played for him and coached with him. I did as well, and, and Coach Coach Smith played for him. So it was just great to see him, and him being around is, is just fun that, you know, where we're kind of moving the program and kind of back to, you know, kind of what he had got started way back in the 2000s and got this place back on the map, getting it back to that point is has been fun to do. All right, so we've watched coaching change with Transfer Portal, NIL, all this stuff that's in, and we're watching the, re- the recruiting guy now become the head coach in a lot of places. Um, your place is different. Like, Jonathan's a, he's a teacher. He's a coach. He's got, mm-hmm. The guy's been there. Um, what do you make of the landscape of college football and kind of the direction that it's going, and, and how, do you, uh, how do you adapt as a coach even? Because, you know, part of your job obviously is recruiting and teaching, but now you have – a whole bunch of other things that are involved in getting players to campus and keeping them there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing with the, the keeping the guys here is, you know, you hope that as their experience here and the way they're treated and, uh, and the, the way they feel about coming to work every day is, is the reason that they want to continue to be here. Cause you're absolutely right. Our guys are getting recruited off teams by other teams. There's no question about it. Um, so yeah, that makes it tough. Um, but you, you just got that, that's the landscape and, and you got to be aggressive when you're going to get guys out there and in recruiting and in the portal as well. And, and, you know, and just keep developing the guys that are on your team. And yeah, I I think that's kind of how you, you're going to have to adapt because there's, there's not much else you can do, but, but keep, keep your head down, keep working. And, and you feel good about the guys you do take, because I think that's a big part of it. You don't got to, you don't have to, you know, always be right, um, but you got to make sure that the guys that you bring into your place are the right type of guy and the right type of minded guy, and we can be successful here. Pat Casey told me once, I, I said to him, you know, he's playing North Carolina in Omaha for the College World Series, and I said, you know, they have better talent. And he said, I don't need all the good players. I just need some of them. And it, it kind of echoes mm-hmm. what you're saying, like you want the right players and you need enough yeah. talent, of course, but – you don't necessarily want uh, guys that don't fit your culture or fit your team. Um, yeah. I want to ask your opinion on this because, you know, you've seen Caleb Williams, you've seen Michael Penix Jr. and, you know, all the players in, in this conference. Which guy is the most difficult to game plan for? Or which player in this conference? And it might not be one of them. Like, if, we're, if I'm asking you, Trent Bray, uh, you know, give me, give me who you think the best offensive player in the conference is. Who comes to mind? Oh, I think Caleb and uh, Penix at Washington are the two that pop out right away. Um, you know, obviously both those teams. And then the, the, the thing that's unique about this conference, especially at the skill position, there's just so much talent. 
And then this year, the quarterback play in this conference was the best it's been in a long, long time. Um, so it, 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 every week was extremely, you know, was difficult to, to game plan for because there were so many threats and so many weapons. And, and that's why I, I think our coaching staff did a great job of, of getting our guys ready to play. And then the players, you know, really bought in and locked in the, every week what we were trying to get done, what we had to stop. And they, and they did an excellent job doing that. Did you guys do a better job against Caleb Williams or Penix in your mind when you look back at those two games? I would say Caleb Williams. Um, I thought we were more disruptive to him probably than than Penix. Um, if when I look back on it, and but uh, yeah, I'd probably say that. Yeah, you guys gave. I mean, you gave him fits, and and I had yeah. you know they looked. I left that game going. I think USC is going to lose multiple games. And then as the season wore on, I went, you know, I think Oregon State might just be really good on defense. When did you figure out you guys were good on defense? You know, I, I knew, you know, when we left spring ball. Um, I, I felt really good about this group. Um, and in a lot of it, not, not just their talent ability, but they, the way they just bought into what we wanted to get done. And when you got that kind of extreme buy-in, um, from your players and, and from the coaches and from everyone in this program. Uh, you just had a feeling like, okay, this is going to be the year we're going to step it up on defense and, and be a reason that we win ball games. And um, So, yeah, I, I felt extremely confident for a long time with this group. All right. Uh, Coach, before I cut you loose, uh, you know, we know we see you guys celebrate a win, and then I know pretty quickly it becomes about recruiting and then a ball game. And, you know, have you had a chance to really absorb – the season, a nine and th- a nine win season, and you know, given where you guys were just three or four or five years ago, you know, we had a kid call in yesterday on the show who has been a student at Oregon State for five years, and he was beside himself, going, "I can't believe I'm leaving school, and my team won nine games because you guys were a two win team when he when he was a freshman, and you yeah. you've done that for a student body. You've made you know you've made it. You've you brought some joy to the student body. But do you get chance to enjoy it, or does it very quickly turn into recruiting time? And then, you know, what what happens next? Yeah, there, there's not much time to enjoy. It. Usually about a couple hours after the game, and then you're either moving on to the next opponent, or now you're moving into to the recruiting and, and waiting to see who you got a game plan for in the bowl game. Um, but I, I did have I had my family here, my dad here uh, over the weekend for the game and. And I did talk to him, and he kind of put in perspective for me about, you know, kind of this season and where we've come and all that. So there was a little bit of that after the game. And, yeah, very proud of, of what these these guys have done here. Yeah, you're a long way from the Hamburg Sea Devils uh, you know, playing football. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you deserve the extension. Congrats on that. And, you know, really nice season, regular season. Can't wait to see what you guys do next. I appreciate that. That was Trent Bray on November 29th talking about the win over Oregon and his well-deserved contract extension. I'm Peter Sampson. He's Stephen Vaughn. This is the best of the bald-faced truth. Coming back on the other side, we'll wrap up hour number two. We've still got great conversations. JC on the Dan Patrick Show also in June. Uh, Michael Llewellyn joined us to uh, talk Phil Knight's efforts to buy the Trailblazers. All of that ahead on the BFT Radio Network. You're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Welcome back in BFT Radio Network. I'm Peter Sampson. He's Stephen Vaughn. This is the best of the bald face truth. Hope you've enjoyed the conversations we've played for you. Trent Bray, Johnny Avello, talking Deion Sanders, Kyle Whittingham, George Klyovkov, Michael Schill, all great stuff. Uh, of course, there is still sports news, conversation topics going on today. That's why on the other side of the quick break we're going to have here at the top of the hour, we're still going to do the five at five, give you the five biggest things going on in sports that you need to know today. And coming up in the final hour, of course, we'll hear John Canzano joining the Dan Patrick show that happened in June, June 3rd, to be specific. Uh, basically, it's it's a Phil Knight heavy uh, final hour. Of course, you remember the big news in early June that Phil Knight had made and offered two billion dollars to buy the Trailblazers. Of course, it's interesting that that was a very public offer. Since then, the uh, Jody Allen and Vulcan has sort of resisted that. Uh, Stephen, really quickly, I mean, it was it was a pretty heavy duty. Everyone got their hopes up, and then they were dashed pretty fast. Yeah, now with uh, the Sun selling for $4 billion, it does yeah. seem like he maybe lowballed them a little bit at 2 right? I mean, that might be a real thing. So hopefully now we know the price point for the Blazers, and uh, they can sell that thing. Yeah, I do have a feeling that that is, it seems like an initial offer, doesn't it? Like maybe if there wasn't a new TV deal coming, $2 billion might be... Maybe a, a couple hundred million low, but again, with that new huge TV windfall f- coming, that's baked into the price. So we'll have JC on the DP show, Michael Llewellyn, who's uh, worked for Nike and the Blazers, all coming up in the final hour of the best of the bald face truth. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Final hour of the program. This is the best of the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn with you this hour. A whole lot of Phil Knight and the Blazers, okay? Got Michael Llewellyn, who, uh, great guy. I know. My, I remember Michael when he worked uh, in the PR Department for the Blazers. Used to always see him at the games. Great guy. He also spent time at Nike, UP now, and uh, he's worked at a, just he's he's had a great career, man. I feel like once or twice a year he'll pop something on Twitter. Where I'm like, man, you worked there too? My goodness, seriously, one of the great guys in this business. But he does have a unique perspective, having worked for uh, for Nike and the Portland Trail Blazers. Uh, he joined JC in June to talk about Phil Knight's attempted purchase. And, of course, John Canzano joined Dan Patrick that same day to break it down as well. We'll play all that for you this hour. But before we get into that, there is a multitude of things going on in the world of sports. That's why we're going to bring you the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Well, the first in your 5 at 5, Damian Lillard, now the leading scorer in Trail Blazers history. He topped Clyde Drexler last night. He did it in more than 100 fewer games. I'm sure he's happy to have the record. He's talked about what that'll mean to him as he was approaching the record. But I know he would have wanted to win the game. Trail Blazers lose. If you listened to Stephen Vaughn and I yesterday, we told you this was a trap game. 
and we told you that Shea Gilgis Alexander was coming back and he was dangerous. Well, he had 35 points. More importantly, he had the buzzer beater on the baseline. Some very weak defense. OKC wins 123-121. Damian Lillard now the all-time leading scorer in Portland history. Both of these teams back at it again tomorrow. Second of your five at five, billionaire mortgage lender Matt Ishbia is finalizing a purchase of the Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Mercury for a record price of $4 billion. That ends Robert Sarver's tenure. That's a good thing. It was a disaster. I imagine Ishbia is going to go ahead and clean house considering Baxter Holmes' report that came out yesterday on ESPN.com regarding the behavior of other executives, including uh, CEO Josh Rowley. Still a mess, allegedly. And now with that deal, the Trailblazers are next in line. And if Phoenix is going for $4 billion, and it's going for that because, again, of the massive expected TV revenue windfall in the next CBA... Look for the Blazers to command, I'm going to say three and a half, three point seven. 3.7. I mean, Phoenix is a bigger market. The deal includes a WNBA franchise. There's a few different reasons that it's going to be a little bit higher than the Trailblazers, but that's certainly higher than what Paul Allen buy them for. 200 million, I think it was. Might have been like 80 million. It was not a lot of money. Well, relatively speaking. And it's a lot more than the $2 billion offer that uh, came in from Phil Knight to Jody Allen and company at the beginning of June. That's where I'm pegging it. Three and a half to $3.7 billion. Third thing in your five at five, the San Francisco Giants, they didn't get Aaron Judge, but they got Carlos Correa. It's almost as good. Or did they? They postponed a news conference today where they were going to introduce him after a medical concern arose during his physical. He's an all-star shortstop. He agreed to a 13-year, $350 million deal. Yeah, this isn't a utility player. This is Carlos freaking Correa. But that deal is subject to a successful physical. Not clear what the issue is. Not clear whether the sides have discussed renegotiating his agreement based on the results of that physical for everyone's sake I hope it's nothing major and uh, they can come to whatever agreement they're going to end up at but Carlos Correa he was set to be introduced to media today got canceled at the last moment fourth thing five at five the New York Jets well for better or worse they're entrusting their fading playoff hopes to Zach Wilson he will be the starting quarterback on Thursday night Against the Jacksonville Jaguars, Robert Sala announced that decision today. And I'm going to be honest, he made it sound like he didn't have much of a choice. Mike White fractured ribs nine days ago. He sat out uh, their game against the Lions, which was a loss. Zach Wilson had some moments, but he didn't look great. And uh, White was not cleared by doctors And uh, Zach Willison, I don't know if he's going to go to the rest of the season or what's going to happen, but if nothing else, their playoff hopes are fading. He is struggling. He will be the starter against Jacksonville on Thursday night football. And uh, final thing, you're five at five. The Portland Timbers released their 2023 regular season schedule today. 
It's their 13th season in MLS. They will open up against Sporting KC Saturday, February 25th. That's a home game kickoff at 7.30. A lot of these games are 7.30, actually. You're going to get some MLS after dark action this year. And, of course, for the first time in club history, in league history, all Timbers and MLS matches will be streamed live on Apple TV+. Plus. That's through the MLS subscription, uh, season pass subscription, English and Spanish. Additionally, Portland will have six national TV matches, two home, four away. Those will be on Fox Sports Networks. That is your five at five. We do it every day on this program. I'm really curious, Stephen, what's going on with Carlos Correa's physical, man. Yeah, I am. Am I wrong to think that that's a lot of money for Carlos Correa? I know Carlos Correa is awesome and he's really good, but it seems like a lot of money. This might be, if they can get out of the contract, would it be the worst thing? Not necessarily. And the thing is, uh, so what's that? 27, 28 million a year, probably 27 and a half, whatever it is. That's not inherently terrible. It's that coupled with 13 years. Like Aaron Judge, you look at that money and you can, you could talk yourself into it. You know, he almost won the triple crown last year, but it's nine years. And you go, okay, night, but 13 years. Baseball's been trending away from those length deals. You know, you have Trout and Bryce Harper and Pujols was the one that really gave everyone pause. 13 years, a lot of money or yeah. a lot of a lot of time. And Carlos Correa, like, he's just not, he's not the guy that can carry a team all the time, I don't think. But, you know, if you're the Giants, you need to make moves, obviously, because the Padres are making all these moves. The Dodgers are making moves. So at the same time, you know, I just said it's maybe an over an overpay for Correa. The Giants do need someone in the middle of that yeah. line to help bash because they have a great pitching staff. They have that pitching park, but they just need some hitters. So it's a weird situation that, you know, they have it scheduled and it gets called off. I'm interested to see what happens. Yeah, hopefully nothing major. I'll just say, Carlos Correa, my my third grader, when this contract is up, I'll be able to buy him a beer to celebrate. You feel me? That's a long commitment to a baseball player. That's why I told you earlier the week when he signed. I was like, you know what? I hope my kids are good at baseball. Just you know, good because they can make three hundred million dollars. They are the they are the best contracts. I if, mean, if they, you're really good, like or a pitcher, you're gonna make a ton of money. Yeah, seriously. If, if your kid right now, uh, he's kind of waffling between sports, especially if your kid is left-handed. <laughs> teach him a changeup. Teach him a sinker, and and uh, teach him to pitch. And a lefty that can throw off speed. He will make millions and millions and millions of dollars just going out and pitching an inning every other day. And he'll be able to pitch till he's like 44. Exactly. That's the way to do it. That is your five at five. Uh, real quick, this segment, it's a shorter conversation, but I want to set up the following conversations with Michael Llewellyn here on the best of the bald-faced truth. When Phil Knight made the offer to buy the Trailblazers in June, uh, JC joined Dan Patrick on the DP show. Of course, John has hosted the Dan Patrick show before, so it was a natural fit. Uh, it's a brief conversation, just kind of setting up the ins and outs, uh, kind of an overview of that. So we'll listen to it now in the best of the bald-faced truth. Here's John Canzano on The Dan Patrick Show. With a lot going on in the world of sports, sometimes you miss these stories. Following the NBA Finals, you know, there's other things going on. And then all of a sudden you see this, uh, oh, Phil Knight is bidding on the Portland Trailblazers. Wait a minute. Really? Are they for sale? And then you hear, well, they're not for sale. And then I wonder if the trust of Paul Allen, you got to liquidate. Does that mean the Seattle Seahawks are for sale? And I thought there's one person that we need to call. He's uh, John Canzano. 
He's a uh, columnist and uh, radio host, and he joins us back on the program. Uh, John, all right, help me understand if there are they are the Blazers for sale. A hundred percent, they're for sale. Uh, there's no wiggle room. The Paul G. Allen Trust uh, dictates that the Trailblazers, the Seahawks, as you mentioned, everything inside that trust has to be liquidated. And it's supposed to be liquidated for the benefit of the trust, and that trust is supposed to fund Paul Allen's passion projects. Now, we already saw there was a huge piece of real estate in Southern California that Greta Garbo once upon a time nicknamed that sold for uh, $65 million in, in January. Uh, Paul Allen's super yacht, the Octopus, had a submarine on it and all kinds of cool stuff. It, it sold in November. Uh, they sold that for $400 million. So this is just part of the procedure. I think uh, you know people in this region know the Blazers are for sale. The Blazers can say they're not for sale, but we know how that works. Um, why Phil Knight? Like, and it feels like there's nobody, I mean, he's 84 years of age, uh, but why? Yeah, that's, a, that's the question, right? Because for years we always thought that, you know, he, he doesn't need an NBA team. He doesn't need an NFL team. He doesn't need a Major League Baseball team. Uh, through Nike, he, he owns them all, right? I mean, he's got his hands in everything. Um, but if you really look at what Phil and Penny Knight have done over the last decade or two, especially in the state of Oregon, they, they have invested in the University of Oregon, They've invested in the, uh, the health and science and research uh, facility here. They have uh, given money to Stanford, as we know. But, um, you know, people don't talk about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that I think makes this make sense. Uh, when Pat Casey, the legendary baseball coach at Oregon State, was being wooed by Notre Dame, Phil Knight, who, you know, reached over to his rival university and said, how can I help you? He personally wrote a check to help Oregon State, his rival, keep Pat Casey. Phil Knight grew up in Portland. He grew up in this state. He made his fortune. He built his company here. I think this is a 100% legacy play okay. by Phil Knight. Doesn't want an outsider to come in and own Portland's NBA team and perhaps move them. But is he looking at getting the Seahawks and the Blazers at the same time? It's a great question. I don't think the Seahawks fit that because I think people in the state of Oregon view Seattle as over there. But I wouldn't be surprised if, as you look at the involvement of Alan Smolinski with the Dodgers, and, you know, it, it feels like this they could be a player in that conversation as well. But I don't think Phil Knight at 84 needed an NBA team or an NFL team. I think this is all about his legacy, Dan. But that means the Seahawks are up for sale. And have there been, like, what's the value of the Seahawks? Yeah, I, I think they're looking at the, the Blazers Brain Trust, which is really Vulcan Inc. It's located in Seattle. They own they uh, you know owned and operated the Blazers for a long time under the Paul Allen umbrella. Um, you know, I'm told they were looking at the Denver Broncos sale. Uh, Allen and Company, no relation to Paul or Jody Allen, uh, they're running that auction of the Pat Bolin Trust to sell the Broncos. That those bids started coming in at four billion and now five billion. So I think the Seahawks are in that $5 billion plus range. And I think, you know, eventually the Seahawks will be sold. I'm told that they will be the last piece of the estate to go out the door. And that Jody Allen has a much deeper connection with the Seahawks than she does the Blazers. She may be angling to come in as a mi minority owner or part of an ownership group. She, I don't think, is interested in owning the whole franchise. But I won't be surprised to see Jody Allen involved somehow with the Seahawks when they are sold, and they will be sold. Closer to a championship, the Blazers or the Seahawks? 
I think the question I've been asking is closer to a championship, University of Oregon or the Blazers? Is Phil Knight trying to get his championship with the Trail Blazers and not the <laughs> University of Oregon? Um, I think, you know, in the, the NBA is tough. We all know small markets, huge disadvantage, right? And that's why I think always having the deep pockets of Paul Allen was a benefit to the Blazers. If you get Phil Knight in the door, and I can tell you, Dan, people here are over the moon at this possibility because they were thinking about outside ownership group, people who wouldn't spend. I think if you get Phil Knight and Smolinski uh, owning this team, Adam Silver has to love it. The other owners have to love it. And the fans here would love it because I do think it gives Portland a, a punching, you know, puncher's chance in the NBA. Great to talk to you again, as always, John. Thanks for joining us. Take care. That's John Canzano, columnist. Uh, he's been a longtime contributor to this show. Also uh, host of a radio show that airs uh, statewide in Oregon. I would want to have the Seahawks, but if I grew up in Portland and I want to keep Portland there, the Blazers there, I can understand that. I mean, if you're Phil Knight, you know, is there an ego play at all? It doesn't sound like, I mean, I wouldn't think so at 84 and you're worth $43 billion. I think your ego is probably in check, but he would love to be able to say, look, by buying this, the Blazers aren't going to go anywhere. And I think there's always that possibility. That uh, And, it, and it, it does sound like a legacy play, as John uh, pointed out. It's the best of the bald-faced truth. John Canzano on the Dan Patrick Show back on June 3rd when the news that uh, Phil Knight with uh, Alan Smolinski, uh, part owner of the Dodgers, made a bid to buy the Portland Trailblazers. They offered $2 billion. That's a timely conversation because, again, the Phoenix Suns today – was announced that uh, Matt Ishbia, mortgage lender billionaire, is finalizing the purchase of the Suns and the Mercury for $4 billion. So it's Portland's turn whenever that's going to be. But whatever they sell for, it's going to be a lot more than $2 billion. My guess, three and a half, three point seven. 3.7. Uh, of course, it needs to take into account the uh, new... TV revenue deal that is going to be agreed on shortly. We're going to continue talking about this on the other side here on the Best of the Bald Face Truth. Michael Llewellyn, he worked for the Trailblazers. He, he worked for Vulcan. He worked for Nike. He's basically worked everywhere in sports, and I'm just going to be honest, one of the nice, nice guys in this business. He's also a wealth of knowledge and information. That same day, June 3rd, he joined this show and talked to John Canzano and gave some really unique insight on the other side of this break. Part one of JC's conversation with Michael Llewellyn on the best of the bald-faced truth. You're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back to the best of the Bald Face Truth. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn. We're revisiting some of the great conversations that have been had over this show over the last mostly year, even though we did go back just a little bit further for George Klyovkov's introductory uh, interview uh, with JC. Michael Schill joined him for that. Uh, 
just on the previous side, John Canzano was talking with Dan Patrick about Phil Knight's efforts to buy the Trailblazers. On that very same day, June 3rd of this year, former Blazers employee, former Nike employee, Michael Llewellyn joined this program to talk to JC about the very same thing. We'll give you part one of that conversation right now. Michael Llewellyn uh, is our next guest. He is a longtime friend of this show. Uh, he, let me give you his history here, a little bit of his history, because I think it's important before I start peppering him with questions. But, you know, he went to Arkansas State University. He uh, also, you know, he's worked at Nike. He uh, has worked at the United Way, NBC Universal, Fox Sports Network, uh, BET. He was a vice president at BET. He went to the Trailblazers and essentially was the right-hand man of Chris McGowan, the longtime president of the business side of the operation. He was in corporate communications. He was in crisis management. Uh, really sharp guy. And, uh, you know, and a guy that, uh, you know, was an adversary for a while. Like, you know, I w you know, when he was with the Blazers, we were often on the opposite side of issues. But I can tell you this. I respect Michael Llewellyn. I think he's smart. I think he's good at his job. And anytime you leave kind of an adversarial relationship like that and you end up going, you know what, this is a person that I respect and I like, I think that says a lot about Michael Llewellyn. I think he can shed some light on Phil Knight. I think he can shed some light on the NBA, the why now, all the questions, and he's joining us now. How are you, sir? John, I think getting to be more of a neutral country now, uh, <laughs> working here at the University of Portland, right. does uh, put our relationship uh, at a different level. We don't have to cross swords nearly as often as we used to, and I think that's a good thing. Now he is a vice president at the University of Portland. Uh, let me just get your reaction when you when you saw the news report, uh, you know, 24 hours ago or so that you know Phil Knight and. Uh, the Dodgers co-owner had put together an offer for the Blazers. What was your immediate reaction to that? Well, I mean, now that I'm more in fan mode than, than Blazer executive mode, I had some of the same euphoria that others had, the notion of local ownership, uh, local Portland-based ownership uh, coming to the Trailblazers and what that would mean to the longevity of the uh, of the team. And who better than uh, a native son of Oregon and, and one who, you know, his legacy, I think, John, is already cemented in this state uh, with what he has done philanthropically, what he's done in the founding of Nike, you know, he's really a permanent part of American business history forever. And and uh, to add an, an additional layer uh, to that uh, to that legacy in, in buying Rip City's uh, uh, favorite team and uh, and making sure that that team uh, stays here in Portland would have endeared him even more uh, than uh, than he already is endeared in the state. I, this is very public, and I don't. And I think some of these deals don't. They happen behind the scenes. What do you make of how public it is? And you know how that offer is out there and people are talking about it usually this stuff does goes down behind closed doors well, you know, that, that's the difference now in the, the environment where we operate with social media, and you've got uh, the insider journalists and the, uh, the, the inside influencers, you know, whose sole purpose is to be first. Not always right, but they certainly want to be first with the information. So I'm not surprised uh, that it was, uh, was, uh, was made public the way it was. Uh, I was part of a major uh, acquisition uh, back when I worked at BET. I was on the executive team uh, that sold BET to Viacom. 
asking for $3 billion back in, in 2000, 2001. Uh, and that still is the largest business deal ever for a black-owned company in America and probably forever will be. But we were able to keep that very quiet until we began to get information out to the Wall Street community and then, of course, had the, the big announcement. But you fast forward to today where social media plays such a key role and people like uh, like Woj who make a living breaking news, like Adam Schefter, they make a living breaking news. And I'm not surprised that it got out there so quickly uh, in, in this way. Adam Silver and the NBA's Board of Governors, I think most fans don't understand sort of the influence. When a team is for sale or going to be auctioned off, that process and how involved the league can be. Because Silver was asked about it yesterday, Michael, and he said, you know, it's his preference that the team stays in Portland. I wanted more than preference. I'm sure fans wanted more than that as well. But how does that work? Well, he walks a difficult line as uh, as the the commissioner of the league because at the end of the day, you know, he works for all ownership, not just one particular team. So he has to try. And speaking of remaining a neutral country, he really has to often assume that position when it comes to major activity involving any of the uh, the 30 teams in the in the NBA. Uh, so he can't show favoritism, and he certainly can't wield influence, and certainly not in a way that anybody would ever notice, uh, because I think it would uh, be be problematic for some folks. I think that was Adam Silver's way of saying the NBA still loves and I think will always love the Pacific Northwest Corridor. If the Blazers all of a sudden evaporated tomorrow, there would be no NBA basketball north of the Golden State Warriors. So uh, I, he knows the value of the Trailblazers in Portland, our fan base. He's been here a number of times. You've seen him at the games when he's been here. Uh, he uh, was close to Paul. Uh, you know, he and Chris McGowan, he and Dwayne Hankins all know one another very, uh, very well. So he values what the Portland fan base and what the Portland market may uh, may may mean. Now I'm sure he would love to see some you know additional rivalries up in this corner. There was a, a story that broke in Sports Business Journal this afternoon that Adam Silver was saying that that expansion is off the table for now between Seattle and uh, Las Vegas. You know that's been circling and orbiting around this Trailblazer story about the possible expansion of the NBA in 2024. Uh, so that was out there this afternoon, carried by the Associated Press, that Adam Silver says expansion is not happening uh, right now. But uh, Adam Silver knows the, the market value. He knows the television value of the Pacific Northwest Corridor, and he's not interested in seeing that going away no matter who owns the Blazers. Michael Llewellyn with us, now Vice President at the University of Portland, longtime executive with the Trail Blazers and other media outlets. Uh, let me ask you about the television deal. I mentioned uh, sort of the d domestic TV rights. Fox, uh, excuse me, ESPN and Turner currently hold them. The teams get about $80 million, as I understand, annually from the current deal. That number is expected to skyrocket three years from now. It could be as high as $300 million per team. How does that factor into a potential sale right now? I would think, John, and this is just prognosticating here with a crystal ball, that uh, whatever is the, the sort of forecast uh, value that may come from a new TV deal and the revenue split for the teams, you can bet that that would somehow, some way, perhaps be factored into the final sale price if these trailblazers are sold. Uh, I don't know of any owner, I don't know of any professional franchise when it's changed hands where anybody left money on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, not, uh, that's not good business. But uh, 
uh, I would anticipate, knowing that that's still a few years down the road, that unless the Blazers uh, you know, are not sold until the TV deal is done, that during those negotiations, that revenue uh, that would have normally gone to the Allen Trust uh, uh, at the time of the sale of the team, if the Blazers are sold before that, uh, then that, I think, would show up in the final price point, wherever that may be. Michael Llewellyn is our guest. Uh, Phil Knight as an owner. You know, uh, I think there's a misconception that money's just money. But all things being equal, what would having an owner like Phil Knight on the Board of Governors mean to the NBA? Well, there, there's a real genius with, with Phil Knight, and, and he is, has manifested that genius across really all the business ventures that he's ever been part of, and certainly what he's doing now, uh, uh, what he did with uh, with Nike, and certainly his influence with the University of Oregon. Uh, he's got this Division Street uh, uh, group that he has launched, which is working on NIL deals for uh, for Oregon athletes. So uh, so he, there, there's a genius to how he handles things. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that I certainly witnessed while I worked for Nike, and I've continued to see uh, from a distance as I've gone on in my career. He is really smart about hiring really, really, really good people to uh, to to run his business. So his businesses. So whoever he might uh, in, put within his inner circle uh, on, in an ownership deal for the Trailblazers, there'll be people who know how to run an NBA team uh, uh, and what it's like in today's NBA. Certainly, he brings uh, some some celebrity status. I mean, he's arguably one of the most successful entrepreneurs in, in the history of this country. Um, so there's certainly that that he would, would bring. But but to your point, I mean, he's uh, he's 84. I don't get the impression he's looking to start over, you know, with a brand-new <laughs> entrepreneurial venture at, at the ripe young age of, uh, of, of 84. But a lot of his moves have been very calculated, very targeted. And then you and I both know this when it comes to Negotiation 101. Your first offer that you put on the table – is not all the money you've got to work with. That is never your first and last offer. So hypothetically, if negotiations are going on behind the scenes already, it just depends on which media outlet you follow, uh, I think they're, they're a long way away from uh, whatever that final price point might be. Yeah, well, we know that $2 billion was not enough. You do imagine that that's just an initial offer. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn, this is the best of the bald-faced truth. You're listening to uh, Michael Llewellyn on the BFT back in June when Phil Knight announced uh, he had made an offer to purchase the Trailblazers for $2 billion. It's a little timely because the news got out today. Phoenix Suns are being bought for $4 billion. That does include the WNBA team, the Phoenix Mercury, as well. When we come back, you'll hear the second part of Michael Llewellyn's conversation with John Canzano about Phil Knight's attempt to purchase the Trailblazers. This is the best of the bald-faced truth on the BFT Radio Network. You're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back in. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn. Best of the bald face truth. I do want to let you know tomorrow, before we get to uh, the second part of Michael Llewellyn's great conversation with Canzano on Phil Knight's offer to buy the Blazers, tomorrow we're going to have Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning from signing day. No, not signing day last year. That's going to be current, but, you know, what the heck. We might as well give you something, uh, something going on tomorrow during the best of. Uh, Bill Walton. 
going to be on tomorrow's Best Of as well. We were going through it, Stephen, and real quick, I was just like, man, Bill Walton, I mean, what are we going to dedicate six segments to him? It's going to be an entire day. Right. Like whole show to Bill Walton. But, I mean, there's nothing better than Bill Walton. Like, I just no. love that guy. He is, I mean, I get it. I guess if I was, like, a fan of a team and he was my announcer, I might get a little annoyed. But as, like, not a fan, like you say, like, you don't have a really rooting interest, I love listening to him on the broadcast. So I can hear him talk all day. Absolutely. So you can look forward to that tomorrow. But right now, let's get back to a part two of John Canzano's conversation with Michael Llewellyn regarding Phil Knight's offer to buy the Trailblazers. What'd you make of the Blazers' statement? They they come out, they say, they confirm we have a re- we have received an offer from Phil Knight. The team is not currently for sale. What do you make of that? Because you've been you would have been releasing that statement. Where does that come from? Who is making that statement? It, it's not unusual, especially when news gets out sooner than it needs to, or if news gets out at a point that's that's critical in whatever is happening. And you and I have seen this when it comes to rumors of trades, when it comes to rumors of hiring of coaches and firing of coaches and, and, and whatnot. When things get out and you kind of put the cart in front of the horse based upon how news the news cycle works, uh, I'm not surprised to see that that was the public statement that they put out there. And I think at the moment it's, it's, it's definitely definitely true. Now, whether or not that's still true in six months, whether or not that's still true in a year, uh, who knows how long this uh, this may take. And then you pointed it out early on uh, in your show. You pointed it out in uh, the news coverage yesterday. You also pointed it out on Dan Patrick this morning. There are already clauses in the Paul G. Allen Trust that call for this team to be sold within a period of years. There's a, there's a, uh, a threshold of years that have already been dictated. Same thing for the Seahawks. So, this particular timing is well ahead of that t- that threshold. So that's why I'm not surprised that uh, the, the Blazers made that, that kind of statement because you want to kind of calm the waters and, and let's get back to what's really important here, and that is a sound business deal with, with Phil Knight uh, and a sound business deal for the Trail Blazers whenever it happens. Do you happen to know those time thresholds on the trust? Uh, you know what? I think we, we'd have to look those up, but it's been reported. Uh, I, I thought it was within 10 years of his passing uh, that uh, certain assets, these assets needed to be liquidated with the proceeds going to the Allen Trust. Let's not forget what the purpose is here in terms of liquidating the yacht and the real estate in California, the other things you were talking about on yesterday. Um, the, philanth- the philanthropy of Paul Allen, the, the goal of the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation and the, the Allen Trust is to see his philanthropy and his influence in science, his influence in a number of the areas of his passion pro- uh, projects to live on, you know, in perpetuity. Uh, and with levels of that kind of money, you can can certainly do that. But if I recall correctly, John, I think there's a 10-year horizon uh, around his death within which uh, assets were to be sold with the proceeds going to the Paul G. Allen Trust. Now, where the Blazers are on that time time continuum, exactly where the Seahawks are on that time continuum and other elements of the of the uh, of the Allen fortune. Uh, I'm sure the only people who truly know that are Jody Allen, Jody Allen and, and Bert Cole and the folks who are running that. All right, let me talk specifically about them. You worked with them. You worked for them. I've got limited faith in them. It's not personal. I've just watched them uh, over the years, and I'm watching, and I'm going, okay, this, you know, Phil Knight should end up with this team if he wants it. If that's real, he should end up with it. But I'm a little skittish about the parties involved on the Blazers' side. Should I be? 
not necessarily. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, we've had sort of so many decades of, of Paul Allen's uh, influence over the Blazers. I mean, Paul bought the Blazers, and you know, back in 1988 for seventy million dollars. So, uh, so Rip City has had a lot of years. Uh, with Paul Allen's influence and Paul Allen's presence uh, as a, as an owner of the uh, of the Trailblazers and and uh, Jody is uh, is somewhat an, of an enigma for a lot of people. They simply don't know enough about her and the things that are uh, that that she is focused on and what she believes in most. And uh, I think that's part of her uh, part of her persona. She came to a lot of games this year uh, and games that that you were at, games that I was at that were sometimes a little painful to watch because it was tough. Season. This was a tough season for Trailblazer basketball, but Jody came to a lot of games. Bert came to a lot of games. They were still being supportive of, of Chauncey. They were still being supportive of the team and the players. Uh, you know, Joe Cronin, and, and now what he's going to get to do in terms of the plan to to rebuild the organization. Um, what I don't want folks to assume is that uh, that we are a, a, a low priority. I don't want folks to assume because they don't know certain things about Jody that everything is 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 negative or everything's exactly. The opposite. I think we we may want to give her just a bit more of the benefit of the doubt, but as you've already been chronicling all along in this process, there've been very strategic moves in and around the uh, the liquidation of assets uh, in the Paul Allen fortune that are designed to to further fund the uh, Paul G. Allen Trust and the Blazers and the Seahawks and their other assets around the world are, are simply part of that. The area around. Moda Center, the the real estate on the other side of the street, down towards the river, uh, you know, the surrounding area is always felt like it really needed development. How much did that, or how often did that come up in Blazers conversations about, you know, what the franchise could be? Because I think whoever buys this team really has an opportunity to be a real estate developer as well. Well, let's let's go back to '95 when uh, when the the Rose Quarter uh, opened and Rose Garden Arena opened. You remember you had Kachina Kachina Restaurant down there. I think there might have been a TGI Fridays. There were efforts in and around developing an entertainment and, and restaurant uh, district, if you will, to be supportive of the, the presence of what was then, you know, a brand new arena. And uh, and it worked for a while. But I think where those ventures struggled was that uh, if there weren't events going on in the Motor Center, if there weren't events going on in the Coliseum, uh, then there was simply no foot traffic. There was not enough traffic to maintain those. That was part of the uh, the, the brilliance of the plan that Chris McGowan and, and uh, Chris Oxley and Dwayne Hankins and the folks came up with in opening Dr. Jack's. You've got that great restaurant there, which is just open on uh, on event nights and, and game nights uh, as a place for our fans to, to enjoy themselves. But that, I think, is, is the big question mark, is uh, how much of that land is truly accessible uh, for development, and uh, would that be a strategic part of Phil Knight's plan or, or whoever might be the uh, the, the next owners uh, of the uh, of the Trailblazers? It certainly is invaluable real real estate, but you've also got those giant uh, grain elevators there that something's going to have to be done with uh, just in terms of things that would help clear out and make some of that land available. But I'd say that's, that's, a, that's a question, and whether or not that gets factored into the sale, I think we would just have to wait and see. Former Trailblazers Vice President Michael Llewellyn is our guest. He's now at the University of Portland. He'd worked at Nike and some other places prior to this. Um, you know, what are we not thinking about? Because, you know, you tune in, you hear us. I know you listen to the show. You read me. What are we missing? When you read it, you go, hey, what, what part of this is the public or the media not grasping? 
Well, we, we, you know how we all are kind of part of a, uh, of a generation of instant gratification. I mean, you know, your kids, uh, my kids, they, they don't know life without the microwave. <laughs> uh, they don't, they don't know life without the cell phone. This, this is the environment from whence, you know, from whence these these kids are, are born from. So when you hear this kind of news, the first thing people start thinking is, well, somebody write a check and let's get this over with. Yeah. Uh, and it is so much more complicated uh, than than that. I think what's interesting too about Paul's situation, and you touched on it during uh, the lead into this interview. You know, Paul was in a unique situation. There were no immediate heirs uh, uh, in terms of to the Paul Allen uh, uh, fortune, and so this route with a, a trust is really uh, was really the, the best way to go. You know, there's no children, there's no widow, uh, so the automatic transfer, if you will, uh, of, uh, of ownership, you know, really was uh, a complex uh, business uh, execution. You mentioned what hypothetically would happen if Phil Knight does buy the, the Trailblazers, and then years from now, you know, God forbid, you know, we, we, we lose him. What happens next? You can bet that there would be a, a transition plan in place, whether it's with his son Travis, whether it's through uh, some other connection with the partner there in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles at is part of this bid. Again, this is part of the genius of, uh, of Phil Knight as a, as a businessman. He will have these kinds of considerations in his mind should this transaction come down the road. Michael Llewellyn with us. Uh, before I cut you loose, last question. You know, uh, I think it's frustrating for Blazer fans because small market, the way the NBA is set up, I mean, you've got to be really good in the draft. You've got to retain your players. You've got to develop them. You've got to stay injury-free if you're going to be a small market team and you're going to win big. I think adding Phil Knight, does it help potentially that summer swoon we, we go through every July where we watch other teams sign free agents? Does, it, does Phil Knight in the mix create a little bit uh, of moxie for this franchise? I think psychologically for the Rip City faithful, having, you know, quote-unquote one of us uh, in, in charge certainly makes people feel better if psychologically, you know, if, if nothing else. You know, I, I've heard some of the fan reaction, well, what happens to Damian Lillard's Adidas deal if Nike, uh, if Phil Knight buys the Trailblazers? And you hit it right on the head. Phil Knight has not been involved with the day-to-day -day operation of Nike for a very long time. John Donahoe is the CEO. I think Phil perhaps has a title of Chairman Emeritus, which a lot allows him to, you know, come to board meetings and, and you know, provide any opinions and, and input as a, as, a, as a board member. But you're right. I mean, other people are running Nike uh, as a, the, the giant global uh, behemoth that, uh, that, it, that it is. So uh, I think folks will feel a little more comfortable the fact that uh, the owner of the Trailblazers potentially would be one of us. But uh, Nike's already got a stake in the NBA. Nike's got the uniforms, all the sideline gear. Uh, the NBA pretty much lets the players wear whatever shoes they want. But I think there is something psychological. Let's not forget, I don't think uh, the, the presence of Phil Knight as an owner uh, you know, will fall on deaf ears to the folks at Nike who do mm. contribute big to the marketing of the NBA, to the marketing of basketball around the world. Uh, over the weekend, I, I watched the championship game in the, uh, the the Africa League that the NBA has launched now in, in its second year, and it's literally NBA-style basketball being played among countries and cities there in, in, on the continent of Africa, and it was fantastic. The talent of, of the players that you saw, uh, the fan reaction, so basketball truly is a global sport, and Phil Knight recognizes that. Nike has long recognized that, and see, those are the kinds of things that would let me 
know as a fan that uh, that we, meaning Rip City, uh, would be in good hands uh, if uh, a native son of Oregon was was owning this team. But uh, we need to kind of dial down the panic here just a little bit, and uh, because even if negotiations are going on right now, John, you've certainly been around them and covered some major deals down through the years. This thing, these kinds of things, take a lot of time. Michael Llewellyn, I appreciate you. Thank you, my friend. All right. Have a good weekend, bud. Yeah, a lot of different tentacles to uh, Phil Knight's offer to buy the Trailblazers. Of course, uh, Jody Allen did release a statement saying they received an offer. The team is not currently for sale. Then we saw what a lot of people perceived as a hit piece go out. And uh, there was the response that, look, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, someone's uh, assets of this time unwinding, uh, you know, something this large can take 10 to 20 years. Uh, And that's sort of where things were left for about six months until now. Of course, the Phoenix Suns, it was announced today that they are being sold for $4 billion along with the Mercury. And I do think that that helps set the price. It just helps set the market a little bit for the Portland Trailblazers next up in the NBA to be sold. Is the Trailblazers, of course, you have Vegas and Seattle on tap for expansion. Don't be surprised. Four four and a half billion dollars for those two teams. I mean, Steven, it's crazy money, but that's where we're at now. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be nice to be Joey Allen, right? Seeing his paycheck coming in soon. But uh, I mean, I think for the Blazers, especially like, you know, Phil Knight, you know, probably as close to a home run as you can get. I think for the fan, for a fan base, like we're so divisive and we're so, you know, against each other on a lot of different topics when it comes to the Blazers, Paul Allen coming in, or I mean, Bob Paul, but Phil Knight being the owner of the Trailblazers, that's about as close to 100% approval ratings you can get. And so I think if that were to happen, man, only positive things can happen. So I'm excited for that, and I really hope that that happens soon. Yeah, I hope that doesn't fall apart. Hopefully uh, those two sides can get together and work something out relatively soon. Uh, we'll go away, come back, wrap up shop on the other side. Uh, this is the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Of course, I'm Peter Sampson. He's Stephen Vaughn. Keep it right here. You're listening to the best of the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Welcome back to the program. Peter Sampson, Stephen Vaughn. This is the best of the BFT. So many great conversations today. If you missed it, grab a podcast. Trent Bray, Johnny Avello from DraftKings, JC on the DP show, Michael Llewellyn, uh, you just heard, former Trailblazers and Nike's, Nike employee, Kyle Whittingham, George Kleofkoff, right when he was named Pac-12 commissioner, Michael Schill there with them. Tomorrow, you're not going to want to miss it. First of all, it's National Signing Day. Jonathan Smith, Dan Lanning, they're both going to speak. We will have their comments in their entirety And uh, we'll go ahead and play that for you as we get it down the pipeline. We're also going to work in some Bill Walton. Could it be a best of the bald-faced truth without Bill Walton? I don't think so. Now, I did not uh, choose the Bill Walton audio. I will tell you, uh, Stephen Vaughn, I did glance at the most recent Bill Walton conversation. 44 minutes in the archives. 44 minutes. That's actually shorter than I thought. So, yeah, that's good. I'll be. Just, we don't like to get behind the scenes too much on the airwaves just because you need a lot of context to yeah. know what I'm talking about when you're like, oh, well, in the CRP1 channel, you want to put it in program three. Mm-hmm. Like, that means nothing to you. But I will tell you behind the scenes, we do have a uh, so-called drop dead time when we have Bill Walton on the show, i.e. If he's still going and you hit this exact time on the clock, 
you just nuke the show and go to break. You just have to. We have not had to yet. We've been within 30 seconds of it, but uh, that does exist in the uh, policies and procedures. Yeah, the the day that I, you know, Bill was coming on, that was the thing I was told was, you know, have you ever had, have you ever dealt with the Bill Walton interview before? I got in your ear the no, day before. I was like, no, I haven't. <laughs> they're like, well, you have to know this time. Like, this is the mm-hmm. time. This is the procedure. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, but uh, I always love those shows, I'll just be honest, I'm glad I wasn't working that day, but I really enjoyed listening to it from home. So you will hear at least snippets of uh, Bill Walton. Uh, we're going to roll a few of these uh, best of BFTs. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going to be later in the week. I did find an awesome conversation with a friend of mine, Sean Hyken, during the NBA draft lottery. He was in Chicago, and it's really interesting because we're talking about the rumors that they're interested in Jeremy Grant, and they need a wing. Are they going to move into the top four? If they don't, who could they take? and a whole bunch of uh, really interesting stuff now that we know what we know. That being said, we are out of time. If you're in Portland, keep it right here because I'm going to take you home to 7 o'clock with my show, The Pulse. We'll talk a little bit more trailblazers. I'm not going to take a victory lap for sounding like a genius and calling last night's game four hours ahead of time, but, well, maybe I will a little bit. For Stephen Vaughn, I'm Peter Sampson. This has been the best of the bald-faced truth.